It is King Arthur, and these are my knights of the round table. Hi everyone, and welcome to Fan Explainers. My name is David Dedrick, and I'm Ian Boothby. And are we still doing this show? We are still. We are coming back to doing this show. We took a took oh, some time off. okay, yeah. all right. Took some time away. Much like everyone else on Earth, we took some time. <laughs> took some time for sure. ourselves, some me time or us time, and uh, we're back. And so this is the first of our nominated or voted upon. I guess voted upon is a better uh, uh, name for this. Yeah. Thing. We... We self-nominated some films, we, I think, and then uh, <laughs> then we had people vote on them. Yes, and uh, they almost universally said uh, this one. Yeah, yeah. Out of the choices of uh, films, which are Tiger Tail, John Carter, and Monty Python and the Holy Grail, everyone felt that they wanted to hear us talk about this film, which is interesting to me because you'd think that we've talked about it a lot. I don't know if we have or not. It feels like we have. And... Well, by, you know, it's one of these weird coincidences is like I watched it again yesterday, okay. which uh, uh, which was uh, and I'll say what date it was. It was May 11th. And uh, and that was the 50th anniversary of Monty Python. Oh, wow. Well, that's good. Yeah. I watched it yesterday, too. So. Yeah. And then <laughs> so, yeah. I and then I went I went online. I was just doing a little bit of research and just went, what is the 50th birthday? Wow. OK, Fair enough. Huh. So I guess 69. Uh, so... Yeah, I guess 1969 was the first season of Monty Python. Yeah. Wow. So That's it cool. all does sync up and it almost makes it look like we had planned this and uh, <laughs> we're really on the ball. And if I hadn't uh, blown it now, yeah. uh, we could have done that. And we got good for sure, those guys. That'd be great. That shows a real respect for film and comedy and uh, good for good for them. <laughs> well, I was, I, was, I was going to actually start the show and say, funny you should uh, call me, Ian. I'm actually sitting here reading my Monty Python and the Holy Grail book that I just, I pulled off the shelf earlier today. Uh, this book I, is that one. Is, is that spelled in an odd way, or is that a different book that's spelled? In no, an odd I think way? you're thinking oh. of uh, the one that's spelled in an odd way is the the. Oh, okay, there's the big red book, and then there's the Monty Python's other book. It's one of that, and it, but it's spelled with Bach, and has like is okay. a book. It says Bach. Uh, it's her second book anyway. The first book is the big red book, and then the, then their other book is I can't even remember the name of it now. Sorry, and this book is the book of the script of the film. So actually, every time they've done a film, they've put out a book that has the complete script, which which is interesting because it's an un, it's not based on the film; it's based on their shooting script. So it's full of pages that weren't actually shot. So there's lots of pages in here that have dialogue cut out of it, or like crossed out, or whole whole pages of scenes that have been have been excised at some mm-hmm. at some point. Um, now I'm not sure if the book is organized in the way that the film was shot because. Um, I was actually a little while ago, totally unrelated to this. I was watching. There's a documentary about Monty Python on Netflix. I think called The Whole Truth or the Unexpurgated Truth, something like that. It has a really tedious opening that luckily you can skip intro. Uh, when so I was watching the the Holy Grail one recently, and that and that was quite interesting to find out some of the behind the scenes and nuts and bolts element of it. So I guess we can talk about that during the show as well. But what's fun about the book? Well, one thing that's fun about the book is that I, I special ordered this book to Black Bond Books at Scottsdale Mall 
when I was in grade eight because I really wanted this book and I, it was not available in bookstores. So I, I paid a little extra money to have it brought in for, by the by that store. They actually also brought in um, Terry Gilliam's book Animations of Mortality for me as well. Okay. So that was quite nice. And I never owned I owned the Big Red book, but I never owned the the uh, no. I guess I did because I read that one. Maybe no. I'm wrong. I never owned the Big Red book. <laughs> I, I co-owned it. My friend and I bought that one together. And then when I moved, he just kept it. And so I had to replace that one later on. But I bought the second one myself because I do remember reading that in grade seven in class. The uh, whatever it's called. <laughs> that book. The big book. book. And then I, I found a hardcover version of it um, sometime when I was in my 20s. And I bought that one as well. So I have two versions of that. So there. Because I'm a Monty Python fan. But this book's interesting because it has it has the, the original first draft, which has some elements of this, the, the, the eventual screenplay in it, including the opening sequence with Arthur coming to the castle and then the discussion about swallows. So that, was, that sketch was right away in, in, the, in the screenplay. It's maybe one of the first things they wrote for it. Written by Terry Jones and Michael Palin, apparently. And then, but then it goes off, it, it, it goes off into modern times and has a lot of stuff about the Grail being in a department store, and there's a lot of dis- department store humor, which was when it was not used for Holy Grail was cut out and used for season four of Monty Python. There's an episode that takes place in a in a department store, and there's a certain amount about ants in it. There's like a poetry right. reading with you know I wandered lonely as an ant, and and then there's and then there's the, the, the kind of repeating thing of calling Michael Ellis, and the one character wondering who Michael Ellis is, and. So the, some of those elements are in this original first draft. Now, I noticed that you didn't call them scenes. You called them sketches. Well, I think that's what they are more than anything. Don't you? Right. It's a bunch of ske- – it is a sketch comedy movie Yeah, yeah. Uh, that is held together with uh, with a single theme. A very, I mean, yeah, they, yeah. You know, they do have a they do have a loose plot, uh, absolutely. Sure, but it really is a it's a sketch movie more than like uh, if you look at Life of Brian, that's a that's a movie movie. Yes, you know, there are funny ele- there are funny elements and things that you could probably take out and just enjoy on their mm-hmm. own, yeah. like the stoning scene. Yeah, uh, but uh, it is much more uh, what you would call a traditional comedy sure. movie in structure, whereas this yeah. uh, it has this is yeah. scene to scene to scene to scene. Yeah, Life of Brian has a romantic element of his relationship. I think with Judith, their name is in the film. I can't remember exact name. Sorry, but you know, has that element. So he joins this revolutionary party, revolutionary group because he's he's smitten with her and wants to get close to her. So that's his way in. And and so yeah, that that has like an actual kind of like plot to it where things develop and 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 then in the movie, movie has a. I don't think any Monty Python movie really ends in any particular in any very satisfying way, uh, if that's what you want. You know, like obviously, well, Holy, Holy I Grail. would say uh, uh, the meaning of life. Uh, you know, uh, does have a pretty strong resolution at the very end. I don't uh, remember the just, ending of that one. Actually, everyone's dead. Everyone's in heaven. <laughs> okay. So it's like, oh, you know, that's the, right. That's right. It all ends in the afterlife, and all the characters kind of come together for yeah. a big musical. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there's some satisfaction there. I sure, would say. and I think the musical ending to, to Life of Brian is is good as very, well. Very, but very strong. But it it. But it just kind of ends. Like you don't really get like a resolution to the situation. It just sort of ends. Well, there. no one. I'd say the difference between. But you don't want a resolution uh, to people being crucified. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah the different the dif- the difference between like a life of Brian and this one is no one in this film grows at all. Yeah, King Arthur yeah. at the beginning is the same as King Arthur at the end. Yes. No characters learn anything. Yeah, there's yeah. no changes to no, any no. anyone. 
it's they just uh, uh, fulfill the needs of the scene that they're in. Sure. Well, they have a jokey archetype that they that they fall into. So Galahad is the is the pure, and so we have the scene in Castle Anthrax that exploits that element, and then we have Lancelot's sequence where we see him as you know the the turning the head on the idea of the of the the, the warrior knight to this you know mass murderer and uh you know so there's a lot of there is the things where they kind of the characters fulfill their their each character has their moment in 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 each scene but but it's a sort of film that you could and it, it well i think in 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 that documentary it, it mentions that the film originally opened with the bring out your dead sequence then mm. then it went to the then it went to the to the actual opening to the film the the uh, king uh, king arthur coming to the castle and and then the, the swallow argument well i could see that if they did the opening credits which are very very funny yeah and then they went into the uh the real flashy opening credits yes and it all looks really glamorous yeah and then immediately goes to bring out your dead yeah. and everyone's covered feces that would be that would be pretty that would be a strong joke yeah but it wouldn't be the best thing for establishing that this is a movie no exactly right and i think it seems that for everyone it was a learning experience making this movie it you know obviously it was the first time that both terry jones and terry gilliam directed a film they both were eager to direct it and so they co-directed the film and that caused its own problems and then the other problems being of course that they were directing their friends and co-workers and there was very little respect in that troupe in terms of like uh, respecting of each other's talents necessarily. You yeah. know what I mean? There's no like leader. They're a bunch of rebels. That's the yeah, problem. exactly right. Yeah. And, yeah, and so yeah, they're gonna like not enjoy. And so I think they mentioned there that the first week was really hard because they had some troubles with cameras breaking down. They had the problem with all the castles that they had that they had scouted and had planned to use were then pulled from them at the last minute and so they had to like find privately owned castles to shoot in and basically the film was shot in one place they just kind of circled it but they just basically had one castle and then they had one other castle for the end sequence and then and then um they had a yeah so and and so yeah so the 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 cast were like incredibly uncooperative the whole week because they just couldn't see the point of they're in the rain. They weren't wearing real chainmail. They're wearing like uh, it was like yarn that was made to look like chainmail. Okay, it's so, very effective. Yeah, it's very good. But it would get wet and start to droop, and you know, and everyone's you know were walking around in the grass, and so the chainmail would slowly soak up their legs as mm-hmm. the day progressed, and so everyone was unhappy. And and then, but they said after the first week when they saw the rushes, when they went, they saw like what had been done everyone's attitude changed right away and everyone suddenly like gave a hundred percent to the movie because they realized, Oh, this is actually working. It looks good. And what we're doing is, is, is has some, you know, it was actually looks really great on the screen. Like, you know, the stuff they're complaining about, like why there was so much smoke being used and why are we waiting around for this and that? So it was interesting. And then they mentioned that um, Terry Jones was very good at filming the business, like filming the comedy. He was very good at okay. how to get the cameras, you know how to establish the scene so that you're filming it because you, when you watch it it is a very well filmed movie in terms of how this how the sketches are shown you know like there's never a scene where you feel like oh they really kind of wrecked the joke there by by not by cutting the wrong way or not having that in, in the scene but it feels like he really knew how to put the camera in a place where you just saw everything that you need to see in each sequence and also keep it artful you know it's not just a locked in camera but Terry Gilliam was very good at filming the more fanciful sequences, you know, and so they 
So I think it was John Cleese was saying, you know, so you have a scene where, you know, it's joke, 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 and then you show the bridge, and that's Terry Gilliam showing you filming the bridge part, you know, because he could he had the eye for that kind of really artful. Yeah, well, yeah that's pretty gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, or the boat sailing across the the lake at the, near the at the end of the film. Now, is this Terry Gilliam's first movie he's directed? Yeah, both of them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, this... well, I only mention I only mention that because, of course, Terry Gilliam. I mean, nothing gets Terry Jones, mm. and you know, he did direct some stuff after afterwards. Sure. But Terry Gilliam went on to become one of the one of the great directors. So it's interesting. Yeah, that this yeah. Is his first, his first go with such a low budget, and <laughs> you know, and, and really having to to you know re- use your imagination, which is you know what he was was good at. Well, that's something else that I thought was very interesting was at the back of this book, this Monty Python book is uh, the cost of production. So you can learn there that the the main cast, the Pythons themselves, uh, were paid 18,000 pounds altogether. Okay. The other cast, like any other talking roles, were paid in total 1,845 pounds. Um, stand-ins and doubles got a princely sum of just, just under 400 pounds. Mm-hmm. And then crowds were paid as much, actually more than the, prince, the other cast. They got eighteen hundred and eighteen hundred and forty-eight, forty-two. The total cost of the production was um, two hundred and twenty-nine thousand five hundred seventy-five pounds. Okay, because I'm looking at the. Yeah, all right, that makes sense. I'm looking at uh, the Wikipedia page, and they mm. got the budget here as four hundred thousand, but that does. That's that does, exchange, yeah. yeah translates, that's right. yeah, yeah. So and then the and then the box office it ended up making five million dollars. So at the time. Yeah. Pretty good. At the time. Pretty good. And has been making money since. Oh, absolutely. I would imagine so, because I saw it in I saw it in the theater, but I saw it when I was in grade eight. I'm pretty sure I saw it in grade eight in the theater. And so, because I was never on TV up until that point. Like, I never had an opportunity to see it in television. And then it was played, like, in a regular theater, not in, like, going to, not going to a repertory theater here in town, like the Ridge or the Van East or whatever. It was in a, playing in an actual, like, the Lougheed Mall, you know, Cineplex or whatever. And they just brought it in for a, a week or two in the summertime. And, you know, I went, I think I went two nights to see it. Yeah. And both both nights were packed. And I didn't go like two consecutive nights. I went one night with a one my one friend who was like, both on, he and I were, were Monty Python nuts. We went right away. And then I went a, like a two weeks later, or like a, the end of it with some other friends who were, weren't quite as uh, sold on the idea. And I, but I want, really wanted them to see it. So would this count as a midnight movie? Well, it wasn't shown at midnight. It was shown as a regular, like, you know, seven o'clock, uh, nine o'clock run. So, it was, yeah, it was weird. I was just wondering if it made the cycle of, you know. Oh, that it went into that. I'm sure it yeah. did in the States. I'm sure it did in the States. I think. Because it feels like it would fit as one of those. Well, it came out, what, in 75? Yes, it did. So, it actually came out a year before Monty Python broke in the United States. So, mm. it would have been, a, still been, it would have been a minority interest in the United States. But as a as a obsessed teen or obsessed preteen, actually, I used to go to the library um, in Burnaby. It was a fairly large branch, and there was microfiches there, and you could look up old magazines and things like that. And I would go through old magazines and look up Monty Python reviews. So I remember like reading Vincent Canby's review in Time magazine, for instance, of of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It was a good review. Like it actually was well reviewed. That film, there was it was quite popular with critics. And people don't might not know that we're we're from Vancouver. We record yes. this here in Canada. Yeah. yeah. And Monty Python broke in Canada earlier. Than well, the almost States. right away. It was on in '69. I think right. it was pretty much on uh, the same time it was on in England. To the point where when I when I hear some of the Pythons talking about 
you know, uh, nor- breaking in North America, they almost always mention, and not just uh, Canada, Canada, but Vancouver specifically. Yeah. They did, uh, you know, uh, we we got it fast. <laughs> so that's uh, that's that's nice. Sure. It's nice to, okay, it's nice to be uh, on board with that. I was just wondering, do you, when, just in general, we're doing our in generals, and then sure, we we'll go yeah, yeah. through it. Um, just watching this because you and I did another podcast uh, called Full Marks. We went through every one of the Marx Brothers movies, yeah. And those and those films are uh, very densely packed. Like there's very little breathing room in there for anything but jokes, except for <laughs> the occasional musical number, yeah, yeah, or a harp or a harp thing or someone sure. uh, messing around on the piano, yeah. But this film, just from the beginning, is so dense, yes, it with is, with jokes and yeah. little things in in a way that later on I would. I would have like gone, Oh, this is something that uh, we got from airplane because they would put jokes in the credits, <laughs> but these guys were doing the jokes in the credits yeah. plus jokes in the subtitles at the same time. Yes. Everything was so dense with jokes. Yeah. Were, were, were they kind of um, the, the ones that introduced this kind of uh, joke density to, uh, to comedy movies, would you say? Well, I think so. And I think, I think because they were such format breakers, like if you think about the television show, there was episodes where the credit sequence, the opening credits didn't run until like 20 minutes into the show. And they, mm. you know what I mean? And, or, and then they would do things, uh, they would, you know, there's an episode with, uh, ends with like a movie producer, uh, you know, they're all supposed to be Americans, but with that really exaggerated 1960s idea of what an American accent is, I say to you, but anyway, they, uh, they're, and then the show ends and then the credits are all like related to stuff that was in, in that final sequence, mm-hmm. final sketch of the show, just things like that, where they would just change stuff just to, just to have fun, you know? Yeah. So, nothing was a throwaway. Everything no, was yeah. from the very beginning to the very end. Everything oh, yeah. is, you better watch. I think that's one of the reasons for their popularity is it. Uh, and again, I'm not making up anything new here, but they were, <laughs> They were well worth rewatching because yeah. you could never get it the first time around. Yeah. Uh, again, I think like uh, for you know the generation that came right after me, it was uh, it was uh, Simpsons, sure. and like the Simpsons, you want to tape the Simpsons because you're going to miss some background jokes, yeah, yeah, miss some extra stuff, and you're going to want to like watch it over and over again. Uh, and the same thing with uh, with Python. There's no way you're going to get every gag the first time you watch this movie. You're no. going to have to go back. No, and and a lot of it, a lot of it's, well, you know, they, they do a thing. It's kind it's, they're very clever. You know what I mean? And I, I'm going to separate that from being smart. You know, like they're very clever with their jokes. Like, but it's, it, it is not that they really know more than us. It's just that they, they knew, they know how to exploit that kind of smarty pants thing. So we have that sequence in the film with Dennis um, and, you know, the anarcho-syndicalist commune that, that yeah. King Arthur comes upon. You know, all those kind of catchphrases that would have been very much of the time. You know, like those are, that's a parody of, of a certain type of person from that time period. You know, so, all, but when you watch it as a, as a young kid, you feel very smart watching that kind of stuff. because Yeah, you don't think at any point that they're thinking, you won't get this. Yeah, exactly. They're not talking over your head. They're mm-hmm. just doing jokes and you're going, well, you, thank you for respecting me. <laughs> yes. Doing these jokes for me. Yeah. yeah, it's great to have something that respects you, respects your attention, you know, like rewards and then we'll- you. Drop manure on someone's head seconds later. <laughs> we'll give you a little of both. We'll give you a little of both. You know, I'm thinking about Monty Python's record. I think their third record, Matching Tie and Handkerchief, which side two of it has two separate grooves. So depending where the needle falls, it will play two different side twos. And 
I didn't know about that when I bought the record. Of course, I listened to it, and I my first thought was, well, that would seem like a short side. But I put it back in its sleeve and I put it away. And then, you know, a few days later, whatever, I came and I wanted to hear it again because, you know, I only had it, only listened to it once. So I put it on again and then a different side played for side two. And I was like, what's, what's going on? So then I had to like lift up the needle and then put it back. And then it, it you know, started the, the one I'd heard before. And I realized, oh, there's two separate grooves in this, you know, just things like that where they're just rewarding you for yeah. your attention and your who, interest. Who did that first? Do you know? Because I know Mad Magazine also did Mad that. Magazine did one. I think there was a, a horse racing one from the 1940s that, 30s or 40s, that had a similar thing where, depending where the needle went down, a different horse would win the race. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, All right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been done a few different times. But, of course, that was the very first time I'd ever, I didn't, I'd never heard the Mad one because that was a 60s one. And when I was a kid, if you ever got like a super special, the super special the extra things from the super special had been torn out by kids before you because you were just buying <laughs> used ones and so all the posters and such things were got long gone you just got the content which was fine but of course you always were like i wonder what the the flexi disc was like and this would be kind of cool to hear now no, i have I a now i have a record that has all those on them but you know that's it's not quite the same <laughs> but yeah it's uh it's it's yeah there's there i guess we can go into the movie but yes it's definitely a very dense film but it's funny you know like there's uh, I was watching Peter Bogdanovich. I was watching Bringing a Baby with Peter Bogdanovich doing a commentary for it, the director. And it was something, something he said was, he said, this movie is actually hard to watch on television. Yes. You have a, you, it's easier to watch on a big screen because it doesn't feel as, as dense. Um, that he's talking about Bringing a Baby. Like he said, sometimes like when I watch Bringing a Baby on a television, he said, I get feeling really tired because okay. there's so much happening that it just starts to exhaust me. And I, and I thought, well, that's really interesting. Uh, and I think watching it last night, there was a point where I was kind of like, ah, oh, I've kind of had enough. But I'm think, but I'm thinking to myself, I've never felt this way before. And it's obviously it's just because I've seen this so many times, I've read the script so many times, I've you know I've thought about this movie so long that you know I'm not I'm just I'm, I can't really enjoy it on the same level that I once did. You know, like there's no you know like there's no surprise to it anymore. You know, like when I was a kid, every scene was like some magical thing because it's it's different every time like each sequence in this film it just you know it never feels like they repeat things you know like uh i guess there's a couple times where they approach a castle but every time it's a different situation they never they never um you know they don't really repeat themselves in this movie at all i don't think uh every sequence is interesting and and uh and has its own kind of flavor to it the knights who say knee the the kind of scary uh run up to that with all the cuts and the music playing and everything well, that's another interesting thing to talk about in the movie, actually, was the fact that when they did the film, when, when they finished their final, basically their quote unquote final cut of the, of the movie, they played it for, for a group of people, including themselves, and they watched it and it just died on the screen, died on the screen right in front of their eyes. And they couldn't understand why, you know, like they knew the material was funny. They had confidence in that. But for some reason, it didn't work. And Terry Jones was thinking about it and he realized when they had done and now for something completely different, the film before this one, which was actually a real sketch comedy movie, which is absolutely unrelated sketches, no, no, no running characters. And they were redos of sketches and for the most part that, that they'd done on the TV show. That's right. The idea was to sell, make a thing they could sell in America. That was great. The idea greatest hits collection almost. Yeah. Yeah. But there was, they did the, they did the, uh, the dirty fork scene, but when they, when they, uh, were, when they did the, when they did the cut, I guess they added some music as if it was actually in a restaurant. They added some music. And so when they did their preview, everyone's laughing, laughing, laughing. Get to that scene, no laughter at all. Laughter, laughter, laughter after it. 
And so they watched it and they and they they realized, oh, this music, this music that's in the background in this restaurant scene is dis- distracting from it. It's making it too real. And so it's taking away the funniness of it. And so they took out that music and it was funny. And yeah. so and now so for Holy Grail, the they had actually hired Neil Innes, the Bonzo Dog Duda, former former Bonzo Dog Duda uh, person, who they knew, of course, most of them knew from uh, Do Not Adjust Your Set, um, yeah. Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and, and Michael Palin. Later on, show. Yeah. later on, the Ruddles, yeah. And then, of course, he was also in Monty Python shows as well, especially in the fourth season. But the uh, he had been hired to make a soundtrack for for the film, and he describes it as you know. Like he had very little money, so it's basically it's a very like low rent or- like orchestra, like a horn and a, and a and a couple of screen players, and you know. And he said, you know, I wrote this sort of epic sounding soundtrack, but played it's this very you know. So so in the movie, it's it's kind of like its own joke, you know, and it's it's acting counter to what the movie should be because the movie should be very serious until it's not, mm-hmm. you know. And so so Terry Jones had to go to Neil Innes and say, listen, I'm sorry. But I have to take all of your music out of the movie that you did. Not 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 the songs you wrote like Camelot or, or the you know Bradley Sir, Bradley Sir Robin and stuff like that, but the actual like soundtrack music. And he just went to to DeWolf, which was what's called a music library. Yeah. And they were like a company that would just hire session musicians, hire musicians, hire songwriters and stuff like that. And their job was just to produce movie, music that could be used in movies. And so so DeWolf had this. You know, so when you hear that, and it has that kind of da 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 da. Those are just library songs, right? Like anyone anywhere could use those songs in a movie. You just have to pay DeWolf a licensing fee to use them. And so they just went through, and I guess they just looked for heroic music, or whatever, in the DeWolf library. And they took those and they added those to the film, and it just changed it entirely. And suddenly, it was funny again. So yeah. it's kind of interesting those little things that that you need to change. Well, this is the trick that you've got to do every time is you're basically, as you say, you're doing a sketch, a sketch movie. Yeah. But the, but the gag is almost always the same, which is very serious beginning. Here's the twist. And how can you trick the audience time and time again with that same bit? Yeah. But they, but they, but they did it. And I think it was because each scene was, uh, was so different and they mixed it up sure. so well. Yeah, I think that's it exactly right. You know, you get, uh, but we could talk about, I guess we can talk about each scene rather than. Oh, you actually want to talk about the movie? Yeah. Let's all, right. <laughs> well, all right. I don't know. It sounds, uh, it seems a little on the nose, but okay. <laughs> I thought that should be the thing we do. We don't talk about the movie at all. We wrap it up. And it's like, wow, what a great tribute to Python. We never actually got around to it. <laughs> yes. All great, right. Great tribute. So, uh, so yeah, let's, uh, let's begin. We were starting off with the, uh, with the credits that we were, uh, that we were talking about, which are pretty straight uh forward it seems oh can i just ask did you watch this on dvd or did you watch it from from a streaming service i watched it on a streaming service okay so i watched my dvd last night i have it on dvd and you know it has a commentary track and all and all that stuff okay but also it has a really annoying thing which is it has this i don't know what it's a i don't know if i'm just i don't know what it is with me and monty python like i love monty python but there's something about their modern humor that just doesn't get doesn't help me or doesn't it just rubs me the wrong way so for okay. instance this movie starts with some funny things it's like it starts off as like anglo consolidated movies or something like that okay and it's like a black and white film it's called oh i can't remember what it's called now it's something about milk it's a real movie though it's a real british film and they start playing this movie like it's like the credit sequence for this film tells you who wrote it who directed it who's starring in it 
it has Charles Hawtrey in it and people like that, you know. So, and then who I only know because John Lennon uh, mentions him during the Let It Be album. But it, and then you hear a voice go, "You put in the wrong film," oh, blah, 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 you know, stuff like that, right? And then they turn it off, and then the the actual Monty Python starts. And I'm like, hey. oh, this that's so terrible. Like it's such a bad it's a bad joke for for me to me because unlike the jokes of the credit sequence of Holy Grail, which is integrated into the movie and is you're just you're seeing the credit sequence and they're making the credit sequence fun for you by adding some jokes to it. Yeah. You know, so you have to have a credit sequence. We have to know who is in it, we have to know who directed it, all that stuff like that. But we're gonna make it fun for you. Whereas this other joke, in quotes, is really just it just prevents you from seeing the movie right away you know what i mean like it's just like a dumb joke that every time i go to watch monty python and the holy grail i have to sit through this wrong movie that starts before they ha 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 realize it's wrong and start the film i just watched on netflix so it just went right in yeah yeah see there but i'm just kind of i don't know i'm just kind of our our wi-fi has been a bit bit spotty lately so i just thought oh well i already i have it on a better version than i could watch it on netflix so i might as well watch it on the better version so that's what and I on, on, a, on a complete side note, I'll also mention I've seen Spam a lot twice. Oh, okay. Uh, I've never seen Spam a lot, so yeah. And uh, just as and we're not here to talk about Spam a lot, but let me let me just say uh, this is better than Spam a lot. Much much better <laughs> than Spam a lot. It's it's like if you want to go to a, like a Monty Python convention, it feels like that when okay. you go to see Spam a lot. You're just like hmm. But you're all you're really proud of yourselves and the, the jokes you've written in the past. And it's like it's fine if that's the kind of thing you want. That's that's great, and it's fine. And the people who were there seem to have a good time. But uh, I don't even know why I saw it the second time. I think it was because someone I know wanted to see it, and I saw it in the West End. Okay, okay. And both times, and it was like this is this is fine. This is okay, <laughs> but it really should be better. Uh, but it's been incredibly successful. So do I know. I know what. Terry Jones was not a fan of it. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, I think and, I think it's just I guess or Terry Gilliam. Neither of them liked it much. Uh, I was going to say that I think that if but uh, not having seen it, but I'm just going to guess that its problem is that it's only one Python's view comedy view. You know what I mean? Like the maybe, mo- the movie is maybe. the six members. You know that their synergy together. Whereas Eric Idle has sort of, it's sort of funneled through his comedic, comedic, uh, you know, uh, sensibilities rather to than me, all. it's a hat on a hat on a hat on a hat on. <laughs> maybe that's you know. maybe that's Eric Idle's sense of humor. It could it could very well be. I got to say, the one thing I did like was I do like uh, John Cleese as God. That was the thing. Okay. I was like, no, John Cleese makes a good God. This, uh, <laughs> this, this works out for me. Uh, okay, so now to now to uh, the movie that we're about sure, to discuss. Sure. By the way, if you get a chance to see it, go see it. But don't pay a lot to see it, is, is my advice. It's been a lot. Okay, okay. Now, we're back, sure. now we're back to this. So, uh, yeah, credits. Hey, there's some credits. <laughs> yes. uh, and, uh, you know, as you say, it looks like they're pretty straight, but they've got, uh, uh, was it Norwegian subtitles that uh, keep coming up? Sure. Well, they're, they are English subtitles yes. talking about Looking. Norway with the, with the little slash through the O to, get, to give it that uh, Scandinavian sense. <laughs> Right. It builds. It builds up to. There's uh, more and more jokes about moose. Yes. And and the nice thing about this to me is it makes your makes the audience pay attention. Yeah. So yeah. Immediately you're not like messing around and looking around and checking your popcorn. You're like, <laughs> oh, I gotta watch this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm really watching it. And you're like, okay. And it's nice to. It feels respectful to me as a as a viewer 
of a, or a, an audience member were like, oh, you're trying to make everything interesting. Yeah. Good for Thank you. That's great. You're not just, eh. Okay, here you go. Throwing it at us and we'll get to the movie in a bit. Yeah, it was nice. And it's a bit of an Ingmar Bergman joke as well because that black and white title is kind of his, was his, his style, was his... Uh... That was how you knew it was a Ingmar Bergman film you were seeing. If it and had. it makes it as serious as possible, which is how exactly. you have to start things. Of course, and Woody then, Allen uh, would later steal it for his own, for himself. But it was originally uh, Ingmar Bergman's. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure Mel Brooks did as well. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of one right now, but I'm sure if I looked at History of the World or something, I, I'd yeah. find something there. <laughs> um, and yeah, it then uh, builds uh, builds up to. Uh, you know uh, the you know the Python thing of stop that you're being silly. Yes. Uh, which is you know the people who have like done the subtitles have been sacked. Yes. Uh, come back to that joke again. Then they then they now it's time for you know we're going to redo the the subtitles in a totally different style. <laughs> and, yes. and it's the big glamorous flashing subtitles, which are great, and and which you could not do nowadays because you would give everyone a seizure. <laughs> Maybe it's not blinking fast enough. What's Maybe. What's interesting at the very end of, of that sequence, though, is that so it's directed by 40 specially trained Ecuadorian mountain llamas, six Venezuelan red llamas, 142 Mexican whooping llamas, 14 North Chilean guanacos, closely related to the llama, red llama of Brixton, 76,000 battery llamas from Llama Fresh Farms Limited near Paraguay, and Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones. So I just think it's very funny that they, the two directors have hidden their names in this big, long list where it, they're almost lost unless you're looking for it, mm-hmm. which is kind of typical of, of, uh, typical of them anyway, of, to hide. They kind of, at that point anyway, to hide yourself. Maybe they didn't want, maybe they weren't quite comfortable yet with the idea that they had directed this movie. But, well, they're, uh, uh, they're on the poster on the way out. <laughs> you can see who that. You know, yeah. everything's, if you want to know, you'll, you'll know. And also, they're both in the movie itself as well. So, you know, if they need, if their egos need a little stroking, they're there. I see their faces. They're fine. I just want to say one thing about Terry Jones is I haven't watched it yet, but I have it ready to watch, which is his version of Wind in the Willows, where he, mm. he used actors. It's not animated. It's actors wearing makeup, but they're still human uh, performing Wind in the Willows. So I'm really curious to see that film. Um, well, that sounds probably pretty familiar to British audiences who have seen you know, it's done live on stage. That would be how you do yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Not as weird. Not as weird for them as it would be for us. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's true. Okay. Sorry. Anyway. Go on. And that's okay. So we start off with uh, learning what year it is, and we are at eighty uh, nine hundred thirty-two, and uh, we have a nice, uh, nice establishing shot where we're hearing horse horses' hooves, and we get the first big gag, which is a great, great joke to start on. That yes. uh, they're not riding horses. Uh, they got a, they got coconut shells <laughs> and are making the sounds of horses as as if you were an old timey radio play. Yeah, and like I and said, that that was written at, like probably the first thing that they wrote for the film, and so they must have already anticipated that horses would be out of their budget, which is great. Yeah, because then you don't have to mess around with horses. Don't mess around with you're horses. You're going to take up your time <laughs> yes. and and maybe hurt you. You know, you yeah. don't know. Yeah, this uh, for safety reasons alone, this is great. Sure. Um, but it's a, it is a risk for sure. Cause you are starting with something very, very silly. Yes. And if the audience doesn't buy it off the top, wow, you're, you're gone. Normally, normally in a, in a, in a comedy film, you do have to kind of set it, you know, really start off straight and then do the twist when like right off the get go, we're, we're doing <laughs> this real, very, very silly joke. But I think Monty Python had a secret weapon and they didn't realize it until, until they did this movie. 
But that secret weapon was Graham Chapman. Mm -hmm. Because his acting as Arthur, his gravitas as Arthur, for whatever reason, papers over that silliness. Like, as soon as he speaks at the castle as being King Arthur, you know, King of the Britons and all that stuff, you know, he brings this real authority to himself that seems to, it really kind of grounds the film right away. Yeah, because he's reacting. Mm -hmm. He's not, like, if you had Cleese as the lead, it wouldn't work. Because Cleese would be going for the jokes. Yeah, yeah. You know, though, you know, we've seen, like, in Faulty Towers and what have you, he's a very good reactor. He's a very good slow burner. Yeah. But uh, you want kind of that straight man as your lead. Yeah. So all the crazy can go on around you. And and Cleese is always going to be the funniest guy in the room. So you can't have that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and Chapman works for that, for sure. Yeah, he's really good at that. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because Cleese wanted to play that role. And he felt like, yeah, of course he would. Why wouldn't you want to be the king of England? <laughs> and he was, of course a, he would. He was a little put out that they didn't think that he was suitable for the role. But he said, as soon as he saw Graham acting, he just he knew right away that, oh no, they made the right choice. Also, just technically, you can't have King Arthur be the tallest guy. <laughs> that makes that would make no sense at all, yeah. right? Okay. Like Lancelot has to be has to be sure. taller than, than sure. uh, okay. King Arthur. Yeah, that makes sense. That's true. Yeah. So they uh, they show up at the first castle. Uh, and uh, state the state the quest. You know, uh, looking for the uh, no, they don't state the quest. Looking for the they state that he's uh, he's the king of uh, England, and uh, and then he gets a bit of business, a uh, little heckling up there uh, from uh, <laughs> yes, the guy up top. At this point in the film, he is looking for knights to join the round table. Yeah. So he, we haven't we haven't come to the whole the cre- the quest for the Grail yet. Nope. But we're just kind of gathering. Yeah, we haven't seen God. Yet. This yeah. this is the team building part of the of the film. Which is, you know, and that's maybe another good thing about this movie is that it doesn't just start with the Grail. It starts first with the team building. So you get introduced to the different characters and you can have some, you know, these sort of sequences. And then and then you have the Holy Grail part of it, you know, kind of kind of keep mixing it up a little bit. So, I, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's very well done as a. The way it's the way, but this is planned. pretty much a traditional Python sketch. Oh, it, for sure, it's a guy sure. going up and just like, I'd like to buy a blah blah blah, <laughs> and now someone's going to be giving him a hard time. Yeah, and yeah. just talking about how ridiculous everything that they're saying is. Sure, sure, it's like this is just a good straight sketch. It this is. works. I mean, it's good. It's good that the uh, lower class person is up above the king, looking <laughs> down. That's a great. That's a great gimmick. Yeah. But yeah. even if you did this on stage, just straight across, uh, it would still uh, it would still work. Yeah. And and then we get into you know, well, where'd you get the coconuts from? Yes. <laughs> We're immediately breaking that down. That's like, well, this yeah. makes no sense. What this joke is? What's this all about? Yeah. 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 And maybe that's about yeah. Water. And that's that's probably good too. Is that they. Don't they don't hide the fact that they're coconuts? They immediately go to that and yeah, yeah. Will yeah, everything that you would complain about as an audience member, they'll say first <laughs> and address. Yeah. And now that you've done yeah. that, well, no one's going to say anything about them not being on horses again because we've already done that. Yeah, done it in a very funny way. Yeah, and in a very witty way with the whole swallow element of it. You know, like yeah, the idea of a swallow migrating and bringing coconuts with him and or with it, and then. The impossibility of that and the argument, you know, the African swallow and all those sort of things. Yeah, it's very good. It's very good. Very typical. You're right. It's very typical. There's nothing in this film where you're like, wow, they're really pushing the boundaries. But at the same time, it's like when I when I was watching it last night and I was just sort of, like I say, watching it kind of slightly removed from it. I was thinking to myself, man, this is like solid sketch after sketch. Like even if you're just going to admit this is a sketch movie. Okay, that's fine. It's still like 
great sketch after great sketch. There's really not much let down, I don't think, in this movie. Yeah, there's uh, even if you took away the visuals, yeah, you, it would still, you know, and actually it even would work if, if it was a radio uh, thing because you know someone could say, "What's with the coconuts?" Yeah, what? oh, you've just got coconuts behind you. Yeah. There's not even a horse. Like, oh, okay, clack, 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 and then you just do the same sketch, and it uh, it all it all still plays out and works. Yeah, yeah, it's just a good it's just a good bit. So the so. Um, after this, is it the uh, peasants in the mud, or that's right? Are we... So, so you yeah. immediately cut to well, I think it, um, I think it cuts to a, an animated sequence, doesn't it? I'm not quite sure. Or does it cut straight to? Um, can't remember now. But anyway, yeah, it basically cuts from that. There's like a clonk, and then it immediately cuts to a person being thrown into the cart to kind of match that that sound effect, and then we have the bring out your dead sequence. Okay. Which I was watching kind of closely. I never noticed that Eric Idle hits the people that he's working with <laughs> as he's calling Bring Out Your Dead. He's also hitting the people pulling and pushing the cart. So, <laughs> Okay. So is Bring Out Your Dead the next scene or is it talking about uh, the political structure? No, Bring Out Your Dead is uh, Bring Out Your Dead is the next sequence. That's Bring Out Your Dead is yeah. the next scene. Okay. Yeah. And that's good because that really sets the tone of like everything. You know, you, you will not get this. And again, I've seen them. I've seen um, I never saw I never saw the, the movie Camelot. Uh, but I did. I did see Camelot live uh, <laughs> with Richard Harris in it ah. uh, in the later years. But mm. uh, bless it, bless his heart. Okay. But uh, strangely, he also a- sung uh, MacArthur's Park during in the middle of Camelot. Just would break. King Arthur would sing that song as well. <laughs> the uh, yeah, and so anything that you see about Camelot, it's clean, it's beautiful, it's gleaming swords, yeah. it's knights in shining, shining armor. It's cake is milking in the rain. It's really and so the second, there you go. And so the second, if you want to sing the song, brother, go for it. <laughs> I've already done that once in a Scottish accent, uh, or Irish accent, I should say. Uh, and, so, uh, and so what you don't see is the filth and the muck. And uh, no, boom, that's right. right into the filth and the muck. Yeah, this movie... This movie, yeah, they really obviously wanted, they had an idea of what the Middle Ages were like, and they really want to rub our noses in it. So rub away they do. Although later on, uh, I guess Terry Gilliam, not Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones was saying, um, I think he says this in the commentary track, to the, which I did not listen to last night, but I, I watched it a long time ago. But he says that it was interesting, like they, they found a boat that was sunk in the Thames from the Middle Ages, and they, they raised it and they found all these uh, dead people in it. So mm. like I said, capsized and all, all, all hands were lost. But he said, all this is Middle Ages. So all of them had perfect teeth. And he said, in this movie, there's a lot of missing teeth and stuff like that. Because that's your idea of that time period is, you know, dental care was terrible. So, of course, everyone was, Moses were a mess. But actually, because they didn't have sugar, they hadn't discovered, they hadn't brought sugar from the New World yet. People's teeth were quite healthy. So he said on this, this boat that was sunk, everyone had like great teeth. So I thought that was interesting. Would they not have access to alcohol either? I feel like that would be, you know, would sure. do the same thing. Well, they but, had beer. I don't think they had, um, they wouldn't have had grapes in England. Okay. I mean, to me, to me, uh, just getting back to the filth again. Yeah. I, I, I thought for some reason that Jabberwocky came before this one, but it didn't. It was two years later. Yeah, yeah. But I, I always think of that film as well with a, the idea of like uh, how filthy things used to be. Yeah, I think that like was Terry. Terry Gilliam likes the, the muck and the, and the, <laughs> yeah. and the slop, and to show you things they did not. They were not good back then, uh, hygiene wise. Though good teeth, that's good to know. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it just who am I to judge? I um, yeah, I think Terry Gilliam. Yes, I think he made the Jabberwock or Jabberwocky just so he could 
have more mud. That was that was the only reason. He's like, you know what? We didn't have enough of in the Holy Grail mud. Yeah, I, I remember a scene with a guy just defecating out of like his house. Yeah, yeah. Wow, this is a Terry Gilliam scene, all right. This is... <laughs> and it's hard to know how accurate all that stuff is. Like, there was a real prejudice against the Middle Ages in in the Victorian era, and so there was like a lot of like anti Middle Ages propaganda that was written, and so our view of it is a bit is a bit distorted by that. Mm-hmm. So like they kind of like they kind of exaggerated those sort of elements of it just to make themselves feel better, I guess. And uh, so you know, our it's hard for us to look back. We look through a we look through a glass darkly when we look back at the Middle Ages, I think. And uh, the scene that we're playing out here is the uh, the bring out your dead and uh, yeah, another not, great another great sketch. He's not dead. Yeah, I'm getting better. You know, he's not. And uh, they keep coming back to that many times in uh, in this uh, in this film. It's yeah. a good, uh, good running uh, running joke. Yeah, and then yeah, that's right with uh, with um. Lancelot's uh, what is it? Whatever his horse's name is, I can't remember now. But yeah, that's uh, we'll we'll come to that. But yeah, yes, it is great, and that has course... the great uh, end line of uh, that he's a king. How do you know he's a king? He hasn't got shit on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and actually, that was um, uh, the original. The original line was, I don't know, but they're so clean. Mm. And then and then they changed it to I don't know, must be a king. And then finally they said. Uh, finally they added, oh, sorry, I don't know, must be a king, and then why uh, he hasn't got shit all over him. So that was uh, written in by pen into the script. I'm just going through the script as we're talking, so yeah. I can talk about any changes that were done. So that's sort of interesting to me that that was a late addition, so it wasn't in the original. But they found they found a zinger, so that was good. Yeah, it's a good it's a good button and really sets up, you know. Yeah, yeah. things are things are filthy. So so it's after this okay. this scene that they meet Dennis. So they they. Okay. They of course refer to Dennis as old woman. Arthur says old woman, and then Dennis, uh, you know, gets offended by that being seen as an old woman because he's only thirty-seven. <laughs> Which to kind of uh, see that's there again. That's our our idea of the Middle Ages is that we everyone died when they turned thirty. You know, or thirty-seven would be considered so old. But of course, you know, the the what skews our idea is that is that you know there was. You know, child medi- mortality. Yeah, child mortality and, and med- you know, and medical care was pretty awful. But if you were a, a healthy person and lucky, you could live quite, quite old to quite an old age. But it was just harder to do because it, there was just so much. There's so many possible ways to die. You know, like right. you know, just cutting yourself and getting sepsis or you Dra- know. dragons. So many <laughs> dragons. dragons of course, there. is a big problem, especially for maidens. You know, that's a really yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, so then we get yes, this one of my favorite sketches I, I don't know why i like this so much but i just like the idea of of an anarcho-syndicalist commune in this time in britain you know and and the idea of because yeah like in a place as big as england and it's not that it's huge but for this time period you know it's hard to control everything so you would have different groups doing different things in different parts of the country not everyone would agree on what was good or bad so so yeah it's kind of kind of funny to me the idea that uh and then uh yeah it reminds me a bit of the scene in Life of Brian, okay, where they're sitting around saying, "What have the Romans ever done for us?" <laughs> That's a great scene. And it's just a, it's just a good political sketch. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the idea of that. You know, Arthur. Of course, how did you become king of the Britons? And he, the music kind of swells, and you get that. You get him talking about the lady, lady of the lake, passing the sword to him. You know, and then this thing goes. Well, that's no way to run it. That's no system of, of to elect a person to run. You know, like, you know. So that's... Yeah, the other the other thing I see when I, I again I'll just say like a little bit of my background is you know and again I'm no Python 
but I've done sketch. <laughs> I've done sketch comedy. Yes. And I know if you've got a chance to do something that's a funny joke that also saves you having to shoot an elaborate scene. Yeah. Do it. And this <laughs> and and this uh, lets you not have to go to a lake, have a lady lying in a lake, yeah. have the sword come out of the lake. Yeah. It's like on a cold day. You don't want to have to shoot all that. Uh, yeah. So this is great. Just like you just he just tells it to him, just says it. We don't see it. And it works as a joke and it works moving the plot along. And now we know, yeah, there was a lady in a lake, but we didn't have to see that. That's fine. OK, good. Moving on. Yes. The... Now let's do another scene in the woods with a lot of fog. <laughs> uh, yeah, just the just uh, Dennis's outrage at it and the idea of his his, you know, the idea of some uh, strange women lying on their backs in ponds, handing out swords is no system for for a, a, no basis for a system of government. Yeah. And I like that the woman that's next to him uh, agrees with him, but has had a little bit enough of Dennis. Like, <laughs> yes. you know, it's like, oh, here, here he goes. Yeah. yeah. Set him off. <laughs> here we go. There's no internet. So he's going to have to like do it all here. Like, all right. And I like him, but yeah, help help on being oppressed is yeah, great. Yeah, that's great as well. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, did you hear that? What a giveaway when he says, uh, you know, bloody peasant. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Yes, Dennis has all that. There was a TV show in um, England in the 70s. And I can't remember what it was called now. A Citizen Smith, maybe something like that. And it was about a, it was about this very leftist right on guy who, who, uh, you know, it was just like a kind of a, a leech, but he just used his, he used all this, you know, re- revolutionary rhetoric as a way to, as a way to excuse the fact that he was just a lazy layabout, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It was quite a good show. I just, ca- I watched it once when I was in England on a vacation there. I just happened to be playing on TV. And what's kind of funny is because BBC doesn't like have like a set rerun time, you know, like here, like if Friends is playing on TV, you're like, oh, it must be time for reruns on TV, so this will be followed by Roseanne or something. But there, they just would play it like at seven thirty at night, as if it was on the BBC. It's like as if it was a normal show. And so I was watching. I was going like, man, this show seems old fashioned, but it's sure funny. <laughs> and I realized, oh, it is old fashioned. It's from nineteen seventy nine. Okay, okay. It's also a similar situation to a character to the one in uh, Till Death Do Us Part that then was made into All in the Family. And it's the liberal okay. who you know is yeah. a, preaches yeah. a good game, but then you know really is a lazy yeah. Uh, yeah. guy who really does nothing and just mooches. Sure, sure. But uh, you know has very noble, noble uh, things to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah I would have gone. For, I thought you were going to say there was a TV show, and I went like, did Dennis get a spinoff TV show? Because <laughs> I am down with that. Well, basically, he did. That was Citizen Smith. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's similar, if you took that character and put him into you know a different another body and just kind of gave him a put him in a modern situation that's dennis yeah all right yeah but again very good very good scene indeed yes so then we i mean this is like one two three you know we come to the knockout we got one two three knockout blow here's the black knight sequence which it doesn't matter who you are whether you're my dad who never liked monty python this scene never failed to make him laugh because it is so it's so well done and so ridiculous that it's just perfect, you know. And it seems to come, it comes at a point in, in Monty Python's career when they were at their their bloodiest, <laughs> I guess you could say. I don't know what they use for blood, but it's great. It is great. It's great looking blood. Because I, I don't know if you remember the third season of, of uh, I believe it was the third season of Monty Python, ended with a parody the sam peckinpah directed salad days yes with hands getting cut off by the piano lid falling down and tennis 
rackets hitting up in people's chests and all that stuff and just all that blood flowing everywhere and it feels like they kind of because this uh, grail was written between the third and fourth seasons of python and of course john cleese dropped out for the fourth season although he continued to contribute sketches and stuff but he didn't act in it but you you know you can kind of see that carryover uh into this film of that sensibility in this in this sequence particularly where it's just kind of like you know it's funnier if it's over the top if you if you underplayed this it wouldn't be as funny it's funny because his arm is laying on the ground and there's no other way you could play this you know well it reminded me a little bit of uh we we've talked uh, on our, I don't know if we talked on this show, but uh, on may, uh, many times of, on our other show, Sneaky Dragon, yeah. about Evil Dead. Yes. And it reminded me a lot of that in that it's in the woods because it's cheap. Uh, <laughs> there's fog. This fog covers up a lot of stuff. Yeah. And then like a lot of good fake blood. Yes. And uh, and yeah, so it, it reminded me it reminded me of that. But yeah, the blood was so beautiful. <laughs> I don't know how they got it that color. It's just great. Yeah, you well... Know, it's, there, I don't. Yeah, it, does it seem different than what they use in like Hammer horror films? It's slightly darker, isn't it? There's like, something about it. I don't know, but it's you. It's like if you just showed me that blood, I'd go Python. That's Python <laughs> blood. because I would recognize as well evil. I would I would recognize Sam Raimi blood. Yeah, like, that's Raimi blood. That's Python blood. Uh, and yeah, I don't know if I would recognize Hammer blood, but uh, maybe it's maybe it is the same. Yeah, because apparently it was called Kensington Gore. The All right, blood that was used in Hammer films. And it was of a particular look so that it didn't look real. Like mm-hmm. I, I've talked to people and they, uh, who've complained to me like when I've talked about watching Hammer films. And they're like, oh, I can't watch those movies because the blood's so fake. And I'm like, yeah, because otherwise they would have got censored. So they had to make the blood look fake. And that kept movies, uh, you know, the people go, like kids could go see them or at least teenagers could go see them. But but yeah, they didn't. Whereas this movie, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't seem quite as red to me. It has a kind of a darker tone to it. And yeah, it's very, it's really good. It's really good, and uh, they, they, yeah, it's great. It's a great sequence as well. This the whole the whole thing of it is just fantastic, you know. And, I love how and, silent he is when 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 Arthur is talking to him. He doesn't yeah, answer. It's a, great, it's a great action scene beforehand. Yeah, where he's that's right. The other, like it's legitimately a good action scene. That's right. Yeah, that's a good that leads, fight. That leads you into this. Yeah, yeah, that's a good fight sequence. You're right. Yeah, that's a good fight fight sequence. And it also sets up Arthur as not a coward. It makes him different than, yeah. you know, it's not, he's not a guy who would just blindly go into a rage yeah. like yeah. Lancelot. He's not a Robin uh, coward. Yeah. He's yeah. like, I got to fight him. So I'm going to fight him. And you're like, oh yeah, he's a good fighter. He's got Excalibur. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 All right. You've mentioned that. Now you're, now this all makes, it all makes sense. It was nicely set up. You yeah. have to have the yeah. scene before it explaining where you got the sword from for this scene <laughs> to have all the impact that it does. Sure. Yeah. It's kind of, it is sort of building up. That's something that uh, once again, it's mentioned in, in the, in the documentary about Monty Python is that because they were all public school boys who went to, to university, they all did research. And that's what I said. Like when they decided they were going to do, uh, someone says when they decided they're going to do Monty Python, they all immediately started researching. And he said, and that's, and that you know, so they 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 you know read you know Lamort to Arthur, and they went you know with their, their Mallory, and they went back through looking at different sources and and stuff about the Arthurian legends, and they just picked up all kinds of different you know, and they might not have even used half of what they learned, but it informs what they're telling you. Yeah, there's definitely uh, there's definitely some history and knowing what you're talking about behind all this sure, to sure. fall back on and yeah. snap snap that rubber band back. Yeah, yeah. and same with Life but, of Brian, where you can see. The amount of oh, amount of research in how people lived at that time period and 
and it really informs the movie and really makes it. Come oh, it's alive. A, it's a more realistic look at a Bible times than most Bible movies, <laughs> sure. where everything is again completely clean and crisp. Yeah, yeah. It's like no, I don't think so. But back to this uh, fight, which is again such a great bit of physical business. Yeah. So uh, the person who was playing the black, there's a couple of people playing the Black Knight. Okay. So was there one person who who was was actually missing limbs in the uh, in the fight that they they used, or how did they do that? I don't think so. I think they're just tucked down into the into the costume. I think it's okay. It's big enough that you can kind of hide the arms. Okay, I thought I, I thought I heard that like there was someone who actually was uh, oh, really? missing oh, okay. leg. Uh, that they that they uh, used in this, but again, that's the kind of thing that I should have uh, researched. But I'm not a British schoolboy, well, that... <laughs> and so I uh, I didn't. But that feels to me like it would be hard because it'd be certainly be hard to find someone who who had John Cleese's very a uh, very individual t- you know look to. He is very very right. much you know. Can you hear me typing right now to try and find out if uh, if this is uh, <laughs> if this is the case? <laughs> yes, look away. Look- Search as fast as you can. Right. Don't have enough time. Okay. Don't have enough time. Sorry. All right. No, that's that's absolutely uh, no, that's absolutely fine. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Oh, the knight was in fact played by two actors. John Cleese is in the knight's armor until he's down to one leg. Then he was played by a real one-legged man, uh, local by the name of Richard Burton, but not that Richard Burton, a blacksmith who lived near the film shoot. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Cleese could not balance well on one leg. So, oh, so they hired so, him for that sequence. Yeah. Okay, well, that make that does make more. I was going to say maybe for the leg that would make more sense, but not for the arms. And, and Cleese uh, still boasts to this day that he had Richard Burton as his stunt double. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. Good for him. But I and, mean, Cleese does a great and, job with the sword fighting as well, though. And not to uh, not to bring up spam a lot too much here. Yeah, please. But in the musical version of this, yeah. uh, the Black Knight scene was the most difficult scene apparently to do, and so uh, Penn and Teller created an illusion uh, for it uh, that allowed them to do the limb removal. Oh, cool! Live on stage, yeah. That's cool. That's a little bit of Black Knight trivia. Okay, we're back. So, um, in the in the script version of of this sequence, the the knight. Um, the knight actually talks to to um, Arthur, but they cut all that out. Mm. So, because it actually works better of, with him just staring at him silently. Like, that's just so great where he's like, you know, and then he slowly gets sort of more nervous as he's, uh, <laughs> you know, you make me sad, but so be it, you know, come Patsy. And then finally then the knight, you know, talks, you know, none shall pass. You know, it's just so perfect. It just seems like a robot. And then... Uh, yeah, and I think you're right as well. Like when I was watching it last night, I was thinking, "Oh, Arthur's really brave because you know he just saw this guy kill someone, and tells him, you know, he, that he's a you know a great fighter, you know, and and worthy of being a, a knight of the round table." And then and then this guy, you know, then he has to fight the guys. So, but doesn't doesn't hesitate or anything. No, he's not. Arthur isn't a jerk. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Yeah, Arthur isn't he's a jerk. He's treating yeah. people with respect. Yeah. And that's what makes it funnier. If he was a quivering coward or a jerk or a sniveling, you know, toady, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, you might get some laughs off the top, but you wouldn't be able to hold the whole movie with it. No, no. You're so, right. yeah, he's playing it as King Arthur from King Arthur movies. Well done. And, yeah, then you get the limbs removed one at a time <laughs> just, to, just to scratch. It's a flesh wound. 
Uh, that's great. The one thing that uh, I I don't like at the end, which I think is a little bit of a miss, yeah, is where the uh, the the knight has like all the limbs removed, yeah, and he says, "We'll call it a draw." <laughs> I like. And that. then and then Arthur leaves, and he goes, "Oh, running away, huh?" And it's like, no, 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 you called it a draw. So even <laughs> in the reality that you're going with here, you 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 said it's a tie. So you don't want him to come back and fight you. Like if you were if you were kept going with the idea that like no 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 we're going to finish this yeah then yeah but you've said it was a draw so no that doesn't uh, that doesn't work for me I think it's uh, doing two jokes that are not compatible together yeah okay hmm. well I mean Arthur doesn't agree to the draw so maybe he he says well if you're not agree to a draw then we should keep on fighting I I don't know yeah it's uh that's fine it doesn't bother me but yeah I, I, can, I can see your I can see your point it's uh... all right so I uh, so I've won this argument that sounds good <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Is the next None scene witch, uh, the witch scene? Uh, the next, yeah. Also, have you fallen off your chair just now? I just kicked something with my foot as I was crossing my leg. I'm sorry. All right. Is, uh, it, a, is it a chicken? It's not a chicken. The chickens, right. are there, it's raining out, but they're still walking around in the backyard, but it, uh, my windows aren't open. Let's uh, just remember that uh, Dave has chickens nearby him while uh, we're doing this. So always, just... yeah. I was, I'm hoping that they're, they've been laying in a bucket over in the corner of the yard, so... I I have not turned the bucket upright because it seems like a great place for them to put their eggs. So I'm just fine with that. All right. If you want to hear more chick talk, uh, Sneaky Dragon is the place. Sure. To there do. you go. Well, All right. So we're on to the uh, scene with uh, Sir uh, Bedivere the yeah, Wine. Sir Bedivere. That's right. Terry Jones. And uh, we have uh, Connie Booth in the scene as the as the witch. So that was John Cleese's wife, who would later write Faulty Towers with him and, and play uh, play the maid in that show. And so uh, they they do this this one very very well. Oh like yeah. This this is just a straight out sketch yep. uh, about what's you know what makes a witch and burn the witch and they've dressed her up like a witch and done all these things. And so you've got a guy who is supposed to be wise, but of course is a is eccentric and dumb. And this is tough. It's tough to play this. Yes. Um, you know this sketch could could go off the rails, and it could also be really too mean because you're gonna burn this woman yeah for, for for no for for no good reason uh but they they build it up uh beautifully uh they do this weird twisted logic you know about sure. like you very know, uh, very uh very medieval logic there like i like that also yeah. also we forgot to mention that this is the sequence before this there's a short sequence of the monks hitting themselves in the forehead the flagellating monks Oh, very good. Singing that little da da, the little that uh, little Requiem. yeah, the thing that that Neil Innes. I think it is Neil Innes who's who's the the in the playing the monk who's hitting himself in the head and singing. He's in this film quite a few times in different ways. So, mm-hmm. it's always fun. Uh, it's always fun seeing him. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, but I like that it builds up to. You know, uh, how can we tell that she's a witch? And, uh, you know, well, what do, what do we do with witches? We burn them. We burn them. What else do we burn? We burn wood. And you think, like, the thing is going to be, then we're going to throw her in the water to see if she floats like wood. Yeah, yeah. Because that's that's what you would do to a witch is see if they float. And that itself is already dumb enough that it would work. And then, like, what else floats? And then a duck. <laughs> Yes. Like yes. yes. And like every that's what you gotta do in this kind of thing is like when there's something just so bananas, <laughs> everyone agrees to it and like, of course, yes. A duck, well, yes. But it's more so than she's that. gotta weigh the same as a duck. Yeah. Well to the scales. Yeah. And uh, here we go. But what's great about it is that it sets up the ridiculousness and then it pays it off by by it being actual fact, you know. That she's... Yes, that's the thing. She is a witch. That's great. <laughs> 
She's, she's it's just a small little thing yeah. that's like, but it's okay. And she's all right with it. She's like, that's yeah, a fair cop. It's like, all right. She was a witch the whole time. That's yeah. all right. Yeah. I like John Cleese's, I like John Cleese's uh, villager. You know, she turned me into a newt. She turned you into a newt. Well, I got better. So good. <laughs> so silly. But uh, yes. In the logic of the scene, she probably did because she was a witch. This is <laughs> not wrong. He's not wrong. Yeah, it was great. Uh, so very funny sketch that then leads to uh, Sir Belvedere. Belvedere, sorry, Bedivere, uh talking to uh, King Arthur. And uh, you know, and uh, wanting to join up with uh, with him, he's he, because he's wise. He's the first person in this whole film who's just gone, "Oh, King Arthur! Oh, King of the Britons! I oh, yes!" And he bows down, and he, uh, you know, we go like, "Okay." So the, the the smart guy, the person we've established as the smartest person we've met so far, yeah, yeah. is on board with with King Arthur. Yeah. Which now, in the movie logic, is King Arthur's right. King Arthur is right to be doing what he's doing because <laughs> yeah. the smart guy is on board with it. If anyone sure. else was on board first, it wouldn't necessarily work because they're all a bunch of dummies. But this guy, uh, this guy gets it, and so yeah, here we go. Sure, sure. So this was this is in the original script. This was followed by a sequence that was uh, kind of a montage of cuts of um, uh, of. Okay, so it says um, Arthur, Patsy, Bedivere, and Paige riding through hillside. So we come to a castle, long shot of Sir Gawain standing outside and Arthur's group approaching and shaking hands. So then we keep, and then, so then we, we then cut to the group now having Sir Gawain in it. And then, and then we, then they approach Sir Robin and then we cut to them with Sir Robin and it keeps kind of growing like that. Uh, uh, Sir Galahad is uh, surrounded by chickens. He's wearing a carpenter's apron over his immaculate armor and is finishing off a hen house. So just stuff like that. And they keep adding Sir Lancelot handing a baby to his wife. And he strides off to join Arthur, leaving his castle, wife and children. Uh, the castle has washing hanging outside it. And so just like, stuff like that. So they, they, they cut all that and they went with uh, instead to the book. And it's having pages of the book turned. Okay. And then adding in all the Sir Robin, you know, who nearly, you know, fought the beast at Angnor or whatever, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, which I think is actually better. It's a better, funnier thing. And then, of course, I, I love the uh, the gorilla's hand snatching away the human hand at the end of the, <laughs> the sequence as well. Just because it's so ridiculous. Just, why, why, why is that happening? For whatever. We just felt like it. Thought it'd be funny. <laughs> but I think it's always important. And, like, the thing about Monty Python is that that their, their ridiculousness never... It always aids in the forwarding the, the narrative of what, of what they're doing, mm-hmm. which is my complaint about their more modern stuff, where it seems to be that their joke is that it slows it down and stops it. This is my problem with Spamalot as well. Yeah. Like, back and to Spamalot. It's like, they know, yeah, it's, it's, it's four fans of Monty Python. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 just do, do, do the movie. <laughs> just, just do the movie. You know, you can be crazy in doing the movie. Sure. Yeah. But don't step out of the movie and go, eh? Yeah. Eh, pretty good, huh? You seen this? And Remember yeah. that? Remember this bit? Yeah. Uh, okay, fine. <laughs> this is what you like, right? You like it when we do this. Uh, just do a thing. God. Knock it off. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so then we, we go to uh, another... Boy, these, all these scenes are so good. So then we cut to, after the book sequence, we cut to them... Riding, uh, of course, Bedivere is telling Arthur that, that this is how we know that the earth is banana shaped. And then they come upon Camelot. And once again, they do what you said before, which is to make the audience objection. So we have, uh, we have the, um, 
uh, Patsy, played by Terry Gilliam, saying, it's only a model. (laughs) Because they, obviously, because they couldn't use the castles that they planned to use, they could not, they just used cutouts for many of the castles as well. And gets the shh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we then cut to uh, Neil Innes' song, uh, We Are the the Knights of the Round Table, which is great. Which is great, great which is just this burst of energy. (laughs) Yes. And it just it changes the tone of everything. Yeah, yeah. You're like, all right, here we go. And as much and as you need to see of Camelot, it's perfect. And then it, like you say, you you need you also need to cut trouble. And so what do they do at the end of the song is, on second thought, let's not go to Camelot. It's a silly place. Yeah, and then they carry on. And it's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. We know there's Camelot. We know what we know what it's like in this world. We also know that there's no need for us to go there. Carry on with the story. Which is also a bit dangerous, too, because, like, we are barely into this movie. <laughs> yeah. And, like, we were told, like, what's the what's the point of this movie? We've got to get to Camelot. Sure. Okay, we're at Camelot. Eh, we don't need to be at Camelot. Let's go. But. Like, what? You've just thrown away everything that you yeah. were wanting to, even though it's, you know, you're not taking it too seriously. It, it, your motivations, what are you, you going to do? But they Luckily, needed... you've actually got literally God uh, himself. <laughs> that's right. So that's right. So right after the, he says that, they they start to write off, and immediately they 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 are confronted by God, the <laughs> angry God, the angry medieval God in the cloud, who uh, commands yeah commands King Arthur that to go on this quest for the Holy Grail. Now uh, you've got listed there who God is, right? Nope. It's just the. Uh, oh. I just. I only have the. Uh, only have the, the. The. The play. Like the screenplay. Okay. So the. So God is. Uh, w. G. Grace, who was uh, an English. Oh, English cricketer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah English cricketer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they used his. Uh, his face for that. So God is an amateur. Uh, cricketer. <laughs> well, there was no professional cricketers at the time of W. G. Grace. He was as good as an a uh, professional in how he in, in in his play. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, he's one of those. People that uh, are famous that you do not know, they're very famous culturally, but yeah, they only are famous within that culture. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what? Okay. But yes. So yeah, I'm sure I've seen it, you know, I've seen his face doing this like a million times <laughs> and I uh, never knew who he was and now we know who he is. So cool. there you go. Next time you see him, he's a cricketer. And I like cool. that he doesn't like uh, the groveling. <laughs> and doesn't like the you know I'm sorry and oh it's uh, it's like I, I kind of like that uh, you know none of that God just like here go get this this is your quest. The the other interesting thing in the film is that they kind of remove the religious element of the Grail. Like we we outside of the film know what the Grail is, but within the film themselves they don't tell you what the Grail is for, or where it came from. Mm-hmm. Like they just say this is the Holy Grail. Look well, Arthur, for it is your uh, secret task to seek this grail. But it doesn't say, you know, that it was, you know, the last cup uh, that Jesus Christ drank from and stuff like that. Like, they kind of leave that out of it, which I think is good, because you don't really need that information in the film. And, and if kinda... you did have that, and, and God's a cricketer, uh, who's his son? <laughs> That's right. If you want to go down that road. Sure, sure. And I would, um, I tried to say someone's name. Ian, Both- Ian Botham. There you go. That's it. Okay, I was going like, well, that's not that hard a name to say, Ian. I don't know why you're. No, I was trying. To, I think that's his name. I was just trying to think of a of a cricket player that I know, and the only one I could think of was Ian Botham. I think because he was kind of controversial because he got caught smoking pot back in the oh. day. This is like thirty years ago, so that's that was when yeah, it was controversial. That would, that would be the time for that to be controversial. Yeah, not now. Okay. <laughs> I don't think nope. anybody would care. Yeah. 
so yeah, so then then we uh yes, we've just discarded Camelot, but we've picked up the the the, the title of the film. <laughs> we've now yes. so now we have the actual quest to to animate the rest of the movie. And they write off and then we have the animated sequence, the quest for the Holy Grail, and then we uh and then we cut to uh Arthur coming to, Man. Yeah, just like I was thinking the last thing when I was watching this. So yeah, now we come to the French castle. Yeah. It's just so it's it's scene after scene. It's all the greatest hits. Yeah, you're just yeah. going through them all. And like, okay, man, this is Sergeant Pepper's. We're just like, what are we now? <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, here we go. Yeah, it's, one of these. it's crazy. And I, I I don't know if it's obvious in the film, but the 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 uh, the master the castle master of the castle is Gita Lombard. So I like that. Uh, I don't think that. Yeah, I'm not sure if they mentioned that. Guy Guy, Guy like, Lombardo. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a it's such a good uh, part for Cleese. You know, oh my god, the, the rude Frenchman with the outrageous accent. That and just the fact that his his what the English would call gurning, his face making during that sequence is so great as well. This the the you know t- making his kind of what I would as a kid would have called an oboe face with the you know his with his exaggerated ooh mouth and then him hitting himself in the head with his with his hands and oh, it's just. This is wonderful. What a performance. Or as they say, what an eccentric person. <laughs> Agreed. And I like that he claims that they already have a grail. Yes. And I do like the fact that they um I do like the fact that they cut behind to the wall so you can see him talking to his his fellow knights, uh, fellow French knights, saying, I told him we already have one. <laughs> That's so great. And then if you watch the making of any kind of making of footage, you'll you'll learn that that battlement is just sitting on the ground, and they're they're not actually in a castle. They're just they're just sitting like on a thing that was built on the ground. <laughs> oh, of course, it would have to be. You know, when I was yeah, when I was watching it, I was like, "There's no way they've got a cherry picker that's that high that they've like put up there to get the camera under the guy's yeah, nose." Yeah, it's yeah. basically him looking over a Charlie Brown wall. Yeah, yeah like exactly. no, you build the Charlie Brown wall. Yeah, that's exactly. all. That's all you do. Exactly. It's a. It's a. It's a nice uh, trick. Uh, yeah, it's great. To have great French stereotypes. Great insults. Yeah. That then builds to. You know, throwing farm animals. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, fetche la vache. A little bit, a little bit of franglais there with fetche, fetche la vache. Yeah. And, and the, you're like, I know that's cow, but what could that mean? And then, yeah, <laughs> I get crushed by cow, and uh, more farm animals, and the runaway. Ah, oh, it's just great stuff. Uh, yeah. Then, then, yeah. Then we first learn that they haven't, they haven't the word for retreat yet. I guess because that would be a French word, so they can only say runaway, <laughs> runaway. And uh, not not a joke on French bravery, just a joke on on linguistics. That uh, yes. re- word retreat comes from from French. Just want to point that out there. I do not like that. I do not like that uh, characteristic of the French as, as cowards. All right, sounds like you're either killing a goose or you have a very. I have a squeaky chair. chair. Sorry, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll that's have to get right. some WD forty out later. That's all, that's okay. Uh, speaking of things to build and fix, uh, then uh, they come up with the idea. Uh, that well, it's not they come up with the idea, but uh, uh, Bedivere, the wise, comes up with the idea for the Trojan rabbit. Yes, and, and of course, great, the great reason vision. it's the reason it's a rabbit is because it disguises the, the fact that it's that it's drawing it from the Trojan horse legend. Because mm-hmm. then no one's going to know that you're doing a Trojan horse if it's a rabbit. They're not going to think, oh, it's the Trojan horse. Yeah, it's very. Um, of course, it's Trojan horse, but the whole this this whole thing is also very. Uh, Warner Brothers cartoon. 
I love the I love the sequence of the of all the noises in the woods and the camera just sort of panning back and forth. I mean, it's so easy to do yet so smart, you know. Like, let's just pan back and forth and add some sound effects. Oh, yeah, yep. that's, that's a good idea. It's also a very inexpensive time killer. Yeah, exactly. And when you've got a low budget movie, that's <laughs> that's exactly what you want. Very important. Yeah. There's a, there's a bunch of like wonderful time killing moments throughout this movie that also work comedically beautifully as well for pacing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they drop off the rabbit at the uh, door. The trepidatious Frenchman uh, bring it in, uh, and then uh, uh, Bedivere uh, explains the plan. <laughs> which is uh, night yes. him lancelot and uh and i guess galahad i, I yes, think will like, right, yeah. burst out of the uh the uh the rabbit and uh slay them all and then they all look around <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah then you're like well that's enough of a joke but then then they catapult the rabbit over the top <laughs> at them again again it's a runaway it's, it's great it's great uh verbal business into physical business uh just it's just it's just a fantastic scene yes it's very good it's very good and so now we cut to uh i guess a meta moment in the film this is a movie with that becomes more meta as it goes i guess it's sort of commenting on itself already anyway but then we have a sequence now where an historian is standing outside of a outside of a castle talking to the camera about uh king arthur and about the defeat at a at the hands of the Frenchman and stuff like that in his attempt to get the Holy Grail. And then which what they're doing here, of course, is just a telescoping story, telescoping the storyline. We don't need to go into all the details of what, what comes next in the sequence. It's typical of Monty Python to not come up with a punchline, not bother, not bother wrapping a sequence up, but just cutting to something else, cutting to another joke. And so then as the historian's talking, the, the night, the uh, knight crosses uh, in front of the camera and, I guess basically cuts his head off, or well, cuts him in the neck anyway, and the historian falls to the ground. Let's assume dead. <laughs> He's just been, <laughs> just been hacked across the net, neck. And uh, you know, now we, us in the future, we are we are pro- probably not as familiar as people would have been at the time, especially for viewers of BBC of the classic, uh, you know, either Cambridge or Ox- Oxford um, professor talking on television, doing doing a documentary or doing some sort of historical program and, you know, doing this very serious talk in front of a in front of some sort of piece of, you know, uh, quaint British history. And of course Python then twists that by having having history come alive <laughs> history come alive in a very murderous way. And then uh, and then I guess his wife is there during the shoot and she runs into scene and says, Frank and then we we cut back to the uh, the past, I suppose. Yeah, but then we wonder to ourselves: Is it the past then, or does this mean that King Arthur is happening now in our time? Well, we had at the beginning; it said uh, three hundred uh, nine hundred thirty-two A.D. Yeah, plus yeah. the titles uh, thing like lied to us. Yeah, it was possible. Yeah, so maybe this guy's a time traveler. Maybe <laughs> we don't know situation going on, or two realities are combined. Anyway, we can discuss that for days, um, but we're not going to. Uh, so, 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 yeah, yeah, a guy gets a uh, guy gets killed. And then, uh, then do they split it up? Is this what happens? The, uh, yeah. The so next? then we go into our individual sequences. So we we first Which start with. Which is great because yeah. yeah, it was good to have that one scene where they're all together. Yeah. And they can kind of bounce their characters off each other. Yes. We've established now who they are. But yeah, let's split them up and let's get some stuff going sure. on. Sure. Yeah. So we open with Sir Robin, and we of course have the great 
once again Neil Ennis doing his playing the one of the minstrels one of one of Sir Robin's minstrels and he's you know it's sort of established I don't think it's heavily established yet that what a coward he is except through the book like, like I guess it has been established but he's one of those yeah, people of not course, quite so brave as Sir Lancelot yeah who yeah Ran away from the this who like avoided this. And yeah, yeah, else yeah. Happened. Nearly fought the dragon of so and so, and then, uh, yeah. So, but of course, being a coward, he needs to pump himself up. So he has like this a retinue of musicians whose job it is to sing his praises wherever he goes to him. So they are singing uh, about bravely good Sir Robin, uh, and of course, then it becomes this list of of all this horrible things that could happen: eyes gouged out, and liver removed, and stomach torn out, and all this stuff, and then. And then, of course, he's, well, that's enough music for now, lads. <laughs> As he gets more and more nervous at all this the horror, this litany of horrors that are sung to him. And then uh, then they meet, I guess they go past some signs. So there, there's signs that are like written. Yeah, certain death. Certain death, but it's written three yeah, one, times. Uh, pointing the other way, it's Camelot and Camelot and Camelot. And then it's like certain death. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Things as well, yeah. They're very similar to certain death. So I guess uh, he can't read. That's fine. Uh, and, and yeah, they run into the three-headed knight. The three-headed knight, yes, yes. Uh, and what's good about this sequence is it gives Graham Chapman a chance to play another character besides uh, King Arthur. Yeah, and it's one. And look, any comedy movie, especially a British comedy movie, that takes place in the seventies. Yes. It is stunning there aren't more gay jokes. It is stunning. <laughs> like that you've got a character named Sir Robin who's a coward. Yeah. That would be traditionally where you would uh, par- park that character that's, you know, character number five in the old playbook. Yeah. But, uh, but no dice on that. The, the the closest thing is they do a little bit of that with the three the three headed knight a tiny tiniest bit uh, to the point where you just go oh yeah there is none of that in here that's nice I mean there and is then, one there is one one gay joke in it but yeah when when they leave yeah, little, the La- the Galahad bit. Lancelot sequence but but this sequence I feel like they're just drawing from that the British camp tradition yes you know that's you know Frankie Howard and those sort of people. And, you know, Graham Chapman was gay himself. So, I mean, he sure. he has that, you know, I guess they have that excuse or whatever you want to say that, you know, and I think they, not that they have that excuse, but they also have that, that intimate knowledge of a, of a, of a gay person that gay jokes probably didn't seem all that funny, you know, because mm. they, they know somebody who's gay. He's a mountain climbing gay guy, you know, who's a doctor, Yeah, you know, like he's really smart. He's really athletic and, and, you know, butch in the sense of like being very manly and masculine. Also, he's gay, you know, so. I do, yeah, it's it's a weird one because it's like, I think the way they would think of it, and again, I'm not making excuses for it, is, sure. you know, it's the it's the old thing. It's the Apu excuse of, uh, that's a funny voice. Yeah. It's just a funny voice. Yeah. I, it doesn't mean I we, we hate uh, people that are like Apu. It's yeah. just a funny voice. And then you go like, yeah, but there's no one else in the show that has you know, that is that, uh, you know, of their race or that background. And yeah, so yeah. because of the only representation that we get into that yeah. and with, and with Chapman, yes, that he's gay, but he was not openly gay. Uh, no, he was for, openly gay. For, was he? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He came out in 1968 or something like that. Oh, good on him then. Okay. Well then, uh, all, all right. right. We're, all right. Good. Oh no. That's yeah. Good he, to was, hear. he was, out, he was loud and proud. <laughs> oh, all right. I'm, I'm very <laughs> glad to hear that at a time where yeah. that was not, uh, that was not the, the case. No, yeah, he um, held a he held a coming out party, and he told all his friends and people he wrote with, and and unfortunately his girlfriend at the time as well. So yeah, <laughs> his girlfriend got, slash fiance, got, but at least he was honest with her and didn't didn't string her along. Didn't kill yeah. any more time with that. That's yeah, uh, that's yeah, fine. Exactly fine. right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. But no. Yes. 
so the the scene plays out of uh, you know the bickering three headed uh, knight, which yeah. it's just a fun, weird visual character. <laughs> and then uh, we uh, have them. Robin sneaks away yeah. while they're while they're talking. Well, they're bickering. Yes, they're bickering yeah. in a in a campy sort of way. Let's say. And I guess the joke, of course, is that he's a big, giant, monstrous creature that's a little fae. And, and he and joke. he also had killed a whole bunch of knights. So when you come in, you see that there's all these knights that are impaled on uh, a giant lance. There's like four knights that are, have uh, got the, the lance through the chest. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, in, the, uh, in the original script, it, um, it called for... Oh, uh, what was it here? Yes, they passed three knights... Sitting on the ground with an enormous axe through their skulls, uh, three knights impaled to a tree, and then a huge tree with um, maidens tied to it, all looking fed up. <laughs> who, whom uh, Sir Robin calls out to cheerfully as he passes. But they cut that out. I guess they didn't want to have to pay for maidens. And I don't remember. Yeah, the, I don't remember the guys killed with by axe. I only remember the impaled people. Yeah, it was just the guys with the, uh, yeah, the impaled. People. Yeah, that's all you need. You, yeah, that's you good that, enough. Now you're good. Yeah, that's right. But comedy comes in threes, you know. Wait. Yeah, that's why you got the three-headed guy. <laughs> Absolutely. You can uh, send me some money later for setting you that up. Oh, that up. sure, sure. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, he sneaks away, and then we got a nice uh, follow-up song by Neil Innes about uh, how he bravely ran away, and uh, that's pretty great. Yes. I'm just sorry. I'm just turning through here because there's like uh, – I thought you were just oiling your chair. So, no. Heard... <laughs> so, they're they, – um, so, yeah. There's actually a quite a long con- dialogue scene between Sir Robin and the and the giant, but it's all been X'd out here. Good. All been X'd out, and then we just get to him running away. And then we have, this is, yes. This is why it's good to have these books, if you're in any way interested in comedy. It's just to see <laughs> how much, and I bet, I bet their dialogue is fairly funny, and you go like, oh, that's a shame to have to yeah. get rid of that. Yeah. But no, for the greater good of the film. Yeah. Cut it down. Comedy is almost always better, shorter. Sure. Cut it down. You don't want this to be a James Bond movie. Trim it. <laughs> trim it. Trim it. Trim it. And I do think it's interesting that it's not trimmed in the edit. It's trimmed on the page. Yeah. You know, like they're cutting stuff out and not bothering, not even to bother filming it because they know, okay, it's not gonna. We don't need this stuff. It's just cutting into the into the story too much. We yeah. need to cut from this to this. We cut from Knight realizing that he's scarpered. And then we cut to Brave Sir Robin Run Away and all that great stuff, you know. They run away. <laughs> just, yeah, just great Neil Innes business. Yes. Ah, I love Neil Innes so much. Uh, then after that, where is it the uh, Sir Galahad scene? Then we come to Sir Galahad, yes. So Sir Galahad yeah. is... And of course, each of these scenes it works in different ways. So with Sir Robin, we have him riding through the forest with the with the with with the minstrel singing. Then we come to Sir Galahad, and he's crawling through the woods in the rain. It's and, a great. It's, it looks great. Yeah, and I, like it's beautifully shot. And I was watching this, and I was thinking the reason this is happening is because Michael Palin was the only one who was good enough to go along with this. Close <laughs> enough, close enough friends to Terry Jones. They, of course, they worked together all their lives. Close enough friends that uh, that you know he would go along with this you know scene. With them, you know, spraying a hose on him and flashing lightning and all this stuff as he crawls through underbrush, and of course, then he sees a castle. It's only a cutout. This castle uh, with 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 a, a grail shining above it, and then he makes his way to it. And what does he find? Ladies, <laughs> ladies. Yeah, he finds the scene that I like the most as a teenage boy. Uh, well, you would have liked it even more because those ladies were supposed to be naked, but Hazel Pethig who was the costume designer in the film, 
and also co- the costume designer on Monty Python. It's funny, like a lot of people who worked on Monty Python came and worked on this film with the Pythons. And she was one of them, the costume designer. And she convinced them that that wasn't a good idea and that they should just all have all the women wearing shifts, just very yeah. simple dresses. And she's, she's right. She's right. She's, she's totally right. For the comedy, for the comedy yeah, of it. Exactly. She's right. It works so much better that way that they're all kind of like shapeless. There's no like, there's nothing sexy about them. What's sex, cause, because what's sexy about them is just the, their enthusiasm for sex. That's what's sexy, you know? And that's what draws Sir Galahad into the scene because Sir Galahad, the story of Sir Galahad is that he was chased. He was pure. That's why he was the one who found the Grail. I think in the original in the original um, story, he is the one who who does find the Grail because of his of his uh, purity. But he uh, comes to Castle Anthrax, and of course meets Carol Cleveland, uh, you know Monty Python cast member. Uh, apparently hired was the, the the woman in hi- Monty Python really originally hired to, for one one sketch. But they liked her so much, they kept using her. And then she toured with them and stuff like that during their live shows. And, and she was great, uh, great, great comedian, but also super sexy. So she could play that. She knew how to be sexy, but also be funny with it, you know. And uh, all this sequence, there's like really no sex in it. Like she's not dressed in a sexy way. Like if you watch Monty Python, nope. you know, there's that wonderful bit where she's like rolling around in a bed uh, in a bikini or in like a lingerie, uh, lip syncing, uh, some uh, historian talking. And but doing it while she's like flipping her hair and rolling around in the bed, all very sexily. And but this scene where she is supposed to be sexy, they just completely cut out the sex entirely. And I think that's really an interesting choice. And probably, I mean, maybe Pethig was a sort of person who was like, well, this is more historically accurate if they're dressed as <laughs> so I don't know. Well, comedically, they build it up to you know, you've got to come here and be examined, you gotta lie down in bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait a second, okay, now we've got to do this, okay, wait. So my sister, uh, she uh, she lit the Grail uh, symbol uh, yes. above you. Oh, that's too bad. So you know what you, well, you got to do? You got to spank her. Is what you got to do? Yes. And I was like, what? You got to spank everybody? Okay, now we're like really going for it. Okay, so spanking and then the oral sex. Okay, then we're all, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's like uh, there's a what's it? What's it? Uh, oh, I'm trying to think the name of the comedians. Uh, that's something and something. Look, do you know who I'm talking about here? David, David and Mitchell. Michelin Web, yeah, yeah, yeah. They do a they do a sketch about a camp seventies uh, uh, sex hospital. Okay, uh, and, and it's, it's them all doing like double entendres sure. until someone goes, "So you want to have sex?" And everyone's like, "What? <laughs> I can't just say it." And so it's great that in this it just builds yeah. up, builds yeah. up to the someone actually says it, and then that second someone says it, that's when he's rescued and pulled out of the castle. Like, we gotta go. No, because we gotta. No, 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 no. Here we go. Because this actually can't happen. Yeah, it's uh, a yeah. uh, sexy time, so you know, it can only go to this point, and this is the end of it. Here we go. If it was a regular movie, uh, they would all then turn into ghosts and like try to devour him. Like it's can- Castle Anthrax for crying out loud! It is a trap. Absolutely, they would uh, kill him if they were gonna. You know, whatever happens next. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, because yeah, it's you know, uh, sexy good times, fun here. You got to pull him out. <laughs> Then I oh yeah what there was that one scene in there now explain this one to me okay uh, where Carol Cleveland turns to the audience and says why was this scene uh, cut I think it was uh, pretty good oh no they wanted to cut the scene they wanted to cut this scene but I'm glad they kept it in I think it's I think it's quite good okay because I thought the deal was when they re-released okay and tell me if I'm just imagining stuff and dreamt this when they re-released this movie they said there's an extra scene in it. 
that was not in the original movie. Then when they played it, this was the scene. And the scene was her turning to us and going, I don't know why they cut this scene. It's great. And then everyone's going, get on with it. Get on with it. No, I think it's a pretty good scene. Get on with it. And then everyone's just chanting, get on with it. And then they, then they move on. Am I imagining that or was that not in the original? That was the scene they added when they re-released it. And, uh, or is that just crazy banana pants, what I'm saying right now? Okay, so the scene, the scene you think they added was her turning to the camera and saying they wanted to cut the scene. I don't know scene. why they cut the scene. Because they didn't cut I it. It, it is in the, 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 the scene is in the movie. It was in the original it, cut of the film. It was in the original movie. Yeah, but I'm looking, I'm looking to see. Because I believe when they re-released it, they they so added what the, what they added was her turning and looking at the camera and saying they wanted to cut the sequence. I'm glad they kept it. Okay, so they did add that. I believe so because it's not in the, it's not in the script here as I'm reading okay, it. Okay, there we go. All right, that makes sense then. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of quickly. If it is, I'm, I just missed it, but I don't I don't see it in here at all. Okay. Uh, yeah, it goes it goes straight from him arriving, talking to Zoot, Carol Cleveland's character, then. Uh, Two girls coming forward, Midget and Crapper. Yeah, all their names are crazy. Yeah, who are then... The most unsexy names possible, which is great. Yes. And then, of course, they they put him to bed where then the, the doctors come in, uh, who are played by uh, Piglet, being the, with the doctor. Yes. Piglet and Winston come in. Yes, again, the unsexiest names. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, of course, when Zoot returns, she's no longer Zoot, she's now Dingo. Zoot's identical twin sister. Yes. And yeah. I yeah, I don't see it in here. It's interesting. So I wonder if they added that. I wonder how they added that. Yes. Uh, again, listen, here's where we here's where we turn to our uh listeners and go, "Hey, someone out there knows. Let us know." Yeah, please do. What's uh, what's the story in there? We uh we try to research this stuff, but we missed uh, something there. I'm I'm pretty sure. Uh so let us know what's uh what's going on with that cuz that's what I that's what I remember. I remember like that there was a scene that was added, yeah. and then the scene that was added was them going, I believe, uh, I don't know why they cut this scene. And it was like stunning to me that like you didn't just cut a scene so that later you could add a scene and go, I don't know why they cut this scene. Because if so, that's brilliant. Uh, but uh, I guess we'll uh, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, because uh, also that's what's missing here is is um, them talking. And him saying, you know, like he's saying, uh, you know, I, he's trying to convince when, when, so in the sequence, of course, as, uh, as Dingo starts to like up the ante to, um, that he must give them a spanking and then they're going to have oral sex and the girls are all the oral sex, oral sex. Uh, and then Galahad starts to, to, to waver, starts to crumble. He says, well, I suppose I could stay a bit longer. Then that's when we have, uh, Lancelot enter and he, uh, of course wants to, to save uh, Galahad from these foul temptresses, as he calls them. And he threatens Dingo. And Galahad, of course, goes, no, no, look, I can tackle this lot single-handed. And they're like, yes, yes, let him tackle single-handed, all that sequence. In here, there's no part where um, Carol Cleveland, where Dingo says, oh, shit, after they're gone. Mm. So that's that's interesting to me. So I wonder if that was added in as well. Because I was I was looking in the front of this of this book, and there's actually a... a um, uh, uh, on the my, the Python on the Python Monty Pictures Limited, on their in their correspondence, it's a uh, it's a letter from Mark Forstater, who was the producer of the film, to Mike. So I'm gonna maybe think Mike Michael Palin, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure. Just saying, it says I talked to the censor's representative. 
uh, who came along to, to Friday's screening in Twickenham. And he said he thinks the film will be double A, but it would be possible, given some dialogue cuts, to make the film an A rating, which would increase the audience. So apparently, triple or sorry, double A is 14 and over, and A is 5 to 14. So for an A, they would have to lose as many shits as possible, take Jesus Christ out if possible, lose I fart in your general direction, lose the oral sex, lose oh fuck off, lose we make castanets out of your testicles. <laughs> and he says, then he says, I would like to get back to the censor and agree to lose the shits, take the odd Jesus Christ out and lose oh fuck off, but to retain fart in your general direction, castanets of your testicles and oral sex and ask him for an A rating on that basis. So maybe that's why that has been added back in because they're no longer having to, you know, it's for home video. So they don't have to appeal, appease the sensor. And so they could add that, those little bits back in again. Interesting. But, but I don't know for sure. Okay. Well, again, this is where, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're not the be all and end all of this discussion. You know, mm -hmm. if you go to uh, our website, sneakydragon.com and go to uh, underneath uh, this episode, there is a message board there and uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep the conversation going there. Yes. Uh, and, fi and find out what's what. Absolutely. That sounds, uh, that sounds fine. So, okay. So, uh, so he is rescued. He is uh, rescued uh, against his will. Against his will. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and pulled, pulled away. Uh, and then, uh, then we have a scene, uh, where, uh, there's a fella who's going to be married at Fairy Blade, Sherry Jones, who does not <laughs> want to be married. He just wants to sing. He's in a castle. Uh, he, he wants to sing like a Disney-esque song and his dad keeps trying to get him to, uh, to, to stop this from happening. So uh, is that what comes immediately next? I, I've got, I, I'm looking here on, um, I'm looking here on, uh, Wikipedia. Okay. It's like he's rescued by Lancelot. And then, uh, after that, Lancelot receives an arrow, uh, shot, uh, from the swamp castle. But you tell me. No, no, I think you're right. I think it's I think it's been changed in this sequence here, because in the original in the shooting script they have it as uh, coming to Arthur and Bedivere meeting with the old man in the in the hut, who tells mm -hmm. him about the bridge, and then it goes okay. into the Knights of Knee. And I I believe I believe from my faulty memory, which you know I saw the movie last yesterday, but that's no guarantee. But I do believe that you're right that it goes from that to Lancelot, which makes more sense. That it goes, although. Oh no! I think the Knights of Saint is is. Uh, I, I think the Knights of Saint may have actually been before Castle Anthrax. Not Castle Anthrax, but no. I think it's a break between Lancelot because Lancelot rescues Galahad, so they can't okay. immediately go into to Lancelot's story. So we go from that to King Arthur and and Bedivere meeting with the old man in the hut. Very good. Okay, with the, Let's with go with the with blind eyes. I, I believe Wikipedia may be wrong for the very first time. <laughs> uh, I could not be more upset by this. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to write them a sternly worded letter uh, and mail it uh, to nobody because I don't think they've got an address. That's All fine. right, continue. So, yes, uh, get, getting directions for the old man. Yeah, so he says that you have to go beyond the – beyond. Uh, they have to go to a cave – the old man in scene 24, as he's known. Yes, that's right. Which no... So, yeah, that... No. So, that can't be right. No, it can't be right. Because <laughs> he's scene 16 here. So, yeah. So, that must have been a change. I'm just flipping ahead here. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Uh, Yeah. No, they went straight into the Lancelot one. I think that's correct. Because... So, yeah. So, we cut... Because we, we don't cut to Lancelot anyway, right? We cut to the to the father and, and his son in, in the castle. Yes. And dad is, of course... Talking to his son, a very pale young man, 
Played by Terry Jones, as you said. Looking looking sickly, looking out a window, doesn't want to get married, but he's got to get married because uh, his father built uh, castles on swampland over and over again. <laughs> and he kept getting uh, sinking into the swamp and setting on fire and then falling over and then falling in the swamp. And uh, he's broke and so needs to save the kingdom by marrying uh, this woman. But he just wants to sing. That's all he wants to do. Okay, so you know what the break was between Galahad and Lancelot was? It cuts to the um, it cuts the to the wife talking to the police. Oh, okay. And they're standing good. at the crime scene with with by the husband, and you know they're they're investigating this. So that kind of starts that that little sub subplot to the film. And then we cut then we cut to the castle uh, with um, a, a quite and the script is described as quite embarrassingly unattractive. The prince. <laughs> That's nice when you're cast in that role. Like, <laughs> how much makeup am I getting? Makeup? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Makeup, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the ugly, ugly makeup. How much? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Just put a little bit on him. It's fine. Uh, that'll be all right. Uh, so, yeah, we're setting that up. And then uh, he wants to uh, he, he wants this to be uh, not happening. And then we have a nice scene with uh, Michael uh, Palin and the guards saying for them to just uh, keep him in the room. Yeah. And the yeah. guards don't get it. And it's just a great bunch of who's on first. Well, what's crazy. Gr- okay. That's great. But also Graham Chapman's decision to do to hiccup in the sequence. <laughs> it's so great because it's such a little period on, on the joke. I also love the fact that Michael Palin's character the father character refuses to allow any any kind of musical to break out in this so they keep wanting to i would really like to do and the music starts to swell no 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 singing in this yeah it's just great it's great and uh especially since we've already had a musical number yeah we don't need more it's like it's it you would expect there to be a musical number maybe at this point but nope he's uh <laughs> he's blocking it through the whole thing yeah so yeah great uh great back and forth there with him and the guards yeah you know with like trying to explain it all in the final like joke of it of like okay we got it we got it and then they all leave together yeah <laughs> no get back in there yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're coming with no no so yeah just that's really re- well done well and done. The prince uh, uh, writes a little note uh, down while looking at the guards who are just smiling at him. <laughs> yeah. Blank, yeah. Blank, happy look, <laughs> and uh, shoots the arrow out the out the window. <laughs> and then we cut to Lancelot. Yes, with his with his noble page Concord, mm-hmm. who uh, they're I guess they're jumping over rocks in this the creek or the stream or whatever, and then yeah, he's... and he's trying to match the sounds with the. Uh, with the coconuts. Yes, that's right. Trying to make it appropriate sound effects with it, which is great. And then there's a sound effect of an arrow and then a boing sound. <laughs> and we cut to find that Concord has been shot by an arrow in the heart. <laughs> and so, so he's dead. That's uh, There's no two ways about that. And I like, so the original thing uh, was, uh, he says to, uh, in the original script, he says to Lancelot, he says, oh, sir, something just struck me. And Lancelot says, what, about the earth being banana-shaped? <laughs> but they changed it to message for you, sir, which is much better. Much better. And that's where we uh, we get uh, into uh, another round of, you know, he's dead. Nah, you know, I'm, I'm getting better. Yeah. I think I'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you rest up. You rest up. Yeah. Uh, it's just all, uh, it's all well and good. And then uh, off he goes to rescue uh, the person who is being held against their will uh, and uh, forced to marry someone they do not love, uh, which is... Uh, uh, part of his uh, idiom is that what he said? Yes, part of his idiom. Yeah. Yes, and of course so, he's imagining a, a, a maiden yeah. who has sent sent this note. And uh, I now 
I know you're not a, you're not a fan of repetition. I know. Whereas I am, I love repetition and there's this edited sequence. Here. Well, what is it that you love, Dave? Repetition. One of, oh, one of my I, favorite I things. Hate, I hate that, Dave. I hate it. I know. And but it, you're saying, what do you love? I love repetition. Okay. And of course you hate it. And one of, the, one of the things you hate <laughs> is repetition. I'm going to make you hate it. <laughs> you're going to come on side. It'll never happen. Right. Because this sequence, how, how do you feel about the sequence though, where the guards are standing? Oh, it's great. <laughs> Even though it's, it's re- repetition. Joke, man. It's a great joke. <laughs> so it's so good. So of course it's, it's great because it's got the timpani roll yeah. as he's running across the field, has that cuts the guards kind of peering off in the distance. Then it cuts back and he's the exact same distance still running towards the camera every time, exact same distance every time. And then there's a sudden, sudden cut to him just like arriving with a haya and just killing both guards at the, at the, uh, or no, killing one guard and the other guard turns and goes, Hey, once you can kind of understand it's a wedding. Why, why is anyone attacking us? Everyone knows it's a wedding going on this weekend. Yeah. And then we get Lancelot once again, very violent, uh, Slaughter of the innocents. As he yeah, just slaughters all the wrong people. <laughs> just kills, uh, yes, everyone, everyone. Not just the guards, but wedding guests. C- chops the stage the band is on. Uh, kills servants. Everyone, everyone falls to his sword. He fights his way. He fights his way entirely through the through the castle, all the way up the steps to the to the prince's room, where. Much to his discomfiture, he discovers that he has done all this for a guy, for a for a prince, not a princess, and is greatly embarrassed. And uh, then the father comes in and uh, and at first is angry, but then discovers that it's Lancelot, and there's a lot of good land around Camelot. Yeah, you can make the best of this. Yeah, and of course the son is making his escape. He has tied bedsheets together and he's thrown them out the window, and he starts to climb down them, calling to Lancelot, who is less than interested in going, and. Uh, and of course, the father cuts the sheets, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yes, it's very, it's very well done. And then, and then the other great thing is that there is an actual music musical thing that starts to play. Oh, and then it has the sun come in as well. Yep. So once again, once again, yes. he's not, uh, he's not dead. He's not dead. <laughs> but we also have the uh, everyone starting to sing, and the the father getting really angry as they're, he's going to tell, you know, that kind of thing. He's going to tell. He's going to tell. He's yeah. going to tell. Yeah, it's very good. Very good. And uh, ends with uh, you know uh, uh, Lancelot uh, trying to swing swing out of the scene, uh, yes. but not going far enough, and then asking for a push. <laughs> yeah, and let me just look ahead here because I believe I was looking at that earlier, and it was not. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's um, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it, uh, it was just that that uh, one line. Excuse me. Could someone give me a push? Was added in later. So. But it works. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's very good. So we cut from that to scene actual scene twenty four. I'd like that they. This is a real shooting script, so it has all the uh, numbers for the scenes. But I have to turn back now, back to scene what is called scene sixteen in this script, which is is uh, as we were saying earlier, Arthur and Bedivere talking to the old man, who tells him about a cave that no man has entered, and past that cave is the gorge of eternal peril, which they must cross. And then there's Arthur saying, but the grail, where's the grail? And he says, seek you the bridge of death. And Arthur says, the bridge of death, that leads to the grail? And then the old man laughs mockingly. And then they look around and he's gone. And then the hut's gone. And I really yeah. like that sequence. That's really kind of cool. And uh, 
And he's a really creepy looking man. He is. They do really good makeup on uh, on, on Terry Gilliam. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. And what's great, of course, is that he comes he comes later on in the film. So get... yeah, and it's creepy again. Yeah, that's great. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so so then we have the se- sequence where uh, now it's not quite as written as as deep in much detail in the script. I was looking to see because it really is. It does have that feeling of being a sequence that was it was kind of specifically edited to to run feel the way it does which is really well done of them close-ups of Arthur and Bedivere looking around fearfully shots of the forest with the with very foggy. And then you just get these kind of silhouetted figures moving in the, in the distance. And of course it's ominous music playing and it's all very well done. And then we're confronted with Michael Palin as the kind of the, I guess the, the, the tall knight is described of the knights who say knee. Mm-hmm. And I think probably the most ridiculous scene in the film is that true to say? <laughs> yeah. That's weird because we've already had a giant. Like we've had a, a three-headed giant. So what's up with this? Uh, you know, we and, and frankly, the uh, Black Knight is not, not a giant himself. He's quite a large guy as well. There's a lot of giants in these woods. You know, they're very mighty and have to be confronted. Uh, so it's like, yeah, what's what's this about? And like, yeah, they just say me and it makes you, it hurts you. And this is such a, it's such a scene that everyone loves. People just love it. It's just, it's just, it's just crazy scene. Yeah. Then they, what, what, uh, what do, what do you try to negotiate? As uh, you know, Arthur knows he can't beat them. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, uh, let's negotiate, and it's like he wants a shrubbery. Yeah. One yeah. that's not too expensive. Yes. But okay, that sounds reasonable. But here's the. I just want to go back a little bit because this is Please. in the script. It's sort of interesting to me. It says, um, uh, he walks towards King Arthur and Patsy. This is the tall knight who are wazzing like mad. It says W A. W-A-double-Z-I-N-G. Wazzing like mad. Then in brackets, what is wazzing? Brackets. This is the important thing. Brackets, it says, Salopian slang meaning very scared, almost to the point of wetting oneself, e.g. before an important football match or prior to a, a postering. Salopian slang meaning a beating by the school uh, preposters, who, of course, were, you know, like the older boys who were... Uh, it's a story about the Salopian sl- slant to the stage direction. Ed. <laughs> now, Salopian is a. I used to know what school this was for because it was where um, someone that I someone I, I liked went to this school. I'm just gonna look it up because I I can't okay. I can't remember. I, I want to, I keep thinking it's charter host, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's wrong. Well, while you're while you're talking about that, I'll say like the one problem with this scene is yeah. uh, why I probably don't like it as much as I like the other scenes. Yeah, is this was the scene that Monty Python fans would uh, recreate. Ah. Uh, when they would like uh, do a sketch like in class and they would do the whole sketch and you're like this is destroying it for me i can now only hear you guys doing it stop it you're making me not like the thing that i like uh but they would like repeat it word for word they'd memorize it so uh so so precisely and then uh, and then recreate it and do it in such an annoying way i'm like oh i just wonder how many people got turned off of monty python because of monty python fans yeah i i remember um uh, of course, being a being a young young nerd, I played Dungeons and Dragons, and I would go to a to the um, community center by in by Wally by um, Wally Exchange there. Yeah, and that's where a group would meet. It was sort of like a you know sort of a come as you come as you are kind of a drop in Dungeons and Dragons thing. And of course, everyone everyone there was just like so nerdy like you know i was somewhat of a nerd i like monty python and and my nerdiness was more just the fact that i was anyway i don't want to 
anyway, not going to that. Uh, but these people were now so... You're, now you're a podcaster, so you were cool. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, a salopian is uh, from for, as a, refers to someone from Shropshire or okay. a pupil of Sh- Shrewsbury School, which is, which is what I know it from because I some British author that I like, I don't know who, it might be uh, the former editor of Private Eye, Richard Ingram's, someone like that went to Shrewsbury School and so they were an old salopian. But um, anyway, so yes, it describes Arthur in this as being wazzed stiff in a, one of one of the descriptors. I just like the fact that they just didn't give up there and keep on. They kept using it. But um, this, so one of the boys there could do that whole uh, chant from from Holy Grail. You know that da da da. You know Requiem. You know he could sure, do it. Sure, And I was yeah. I was very impressed by it. But it just felt like one of those sort of party pieces that you pulled out to impress the dumb kids. You know, and and the sort of thing that. Didn't work with girls. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, yes, those sort of people had the yeah. They they definitely. If I wasn't already a Monty Python fan, if I hadn't discovered him before, I knew people like that. I definitely would have had more trouble with with Monty Python. I think stuff like the parrot sketch and things where it was just repeated ad nauseum by people. Mm-hmm. In, you know, like the mere mere mention of Monty Python, someone would go, you know. I've come to register a complaint or whatever. I don't even know how it starts. That's how Yeah, it's icky so... thump and whatnot. I was like, all right, okay, we're good. <laughs> we're good. We're good. I, I'll watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's like the old um, uh, family guy joke, and I forgot the actual artist, so, but uh, one of the characters starts singing a song, and it's like, uh, who, who does that song? Uh, it's uh, Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah, let's keep it that way. <laughs> 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 It's not bad. Not bad. It's a good joke. Yeah. It's played in my head many times. When <laughs> someone starts doing something. Okay. So we're the Knights of St. Uh and they're uh they want a shrubbery by gosh. Yeah. So it, uh off they off they go. Uh they uh they're questioning a, an older woman and uh, saying knee to her and yeah. actually being kind of cruel to her. Yeah. Uh and uh, and get called out on it uh, by a, a shrubbist. Uh, so. Roger Roger, Roger the Shrubber. That's <laughs> so great. I just love how he I just love how he announces who he is to them in this very important way. Uh I feel like they are being cruel to her, but I think that it's kind of clear that that Arthur's unhappy with it, but they're kind of they're kind of uh it's a sort of what choice do they have? They have to get the shrubber shrubbery to get past the knights who say knee. Yeah, you know the strange thing about it is uh, that it's an actual older woman. Yeah, and you're just like, what's this about? <laughs> Did you run out of pythons? <laughs> like, I know there's three of you in this scene, but like, what the? I guess they ran out of everyone who would play like an old woman in this uh, in this scene. So you got to actually get a real one. It's just yeah, strange. I, I guess that would have been Terry Gilly or Terry Jones's thing. It would yeah. have been to play the old woman. He plays uh, the old woman to debt with Dennis. But I don't think yeah, you could get a Terry. You could get Terry Gilliam to do it, but you've already had him play uh, a, a horrible old man recently. Yeah. So that doesn't. Yeah, Cleese, you couldn't do. No. So yeah, I, I mean, Cleese and Cleese and Chapman did play did play women, but they played it. Yeah, I just feel that maybe they thought because when you think about this movie, there's actually not that much dressing up as women in it, and I kind of wonder if that was a conscious choice to kind of be more a little more realistic. And use actual women where women could be, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and there's not a lot of women in it anyway. So, but like the the historian's wife is played by a, a woman, and 
She doesn't have any lines, really. I mean, she's I, really... I know, but so... I know, but yeah. I mean, really, uh, any any one of the pythons could have quickly done some This is, some drag this is someone who's a character who's being uh, kind of assaulted. And so it's like, oh, that seems like that's a comedy role. Yeah, yeah. That you could play, you know, like, oh! And it's like, that's a that's a role for a comedian. Yeah. It's like, okay, you're, just, you're giving it to an actor. That's okay, which is okay. It's just unusual yeah. when you see like almost every other scene in this movie, and it's very rare that anyone has a substantial amount of lines that is not one of the pythons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know who she is. I don't know what the actress's name is. She was fine. Yeah, she's she absolutely. Fine. Yeah, it does a yeah, and they uh, they get the shrubbery. They present the shrubbery. It's a beautiful uh, shrubbery. Yes. And I can't I can't to this day hear the word shrubbery without thinking of this scene. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. And then the we probably uh, never heard the word before, really. Yeah, the knights have now changed their name uh, to something that only the uh, the nerds in my class knew. Uh, but by God, they knew it. Niao Wumping was their oh, new. There you go. And they want to have a second shrubbery uh, that's got a, like a, a little higher up for that like double effect. Yes. Uh, you know, a layered effect. Uh, and uh, and uh, King Arthur has had enough of that at this point. And you find out that uh, they they now uh, have a weakness, and that weakness is a certain word. Yes. You can't actually say what that word is. You can't say it? No, no, they can't oh, say Oh, they it. can't say it, yeah. Do you know what the word is, though? Isn't it it? It's, yes, that's right. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, they uh, they defeat them. They defeat them in that way, and that's a that's a fine scene. Yes, and Sir Robin joins them at this moment. Yep. Also using the word "it's" further, further, uh, and I like the fact that uh, I like the fact that Arthur gets angry at the uh, at the knights who say "knee" for just being such a carry on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, stop it! Yes. So um, we go from that. I guess we have another cut to the present day. Please. <laughs> Doing something, I guess they could go off in a car or whatever. Uh, and then we end up with a big part of the story X'd out here. Is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Because I've got just here on Wikipedia that they... And by the way, I did watch this movie yesterday. Um, they, uh, they, Arthur and his knights regroup and are joined by three new knights as well as uh, Brother Maynard and his uh, monk brethren. <laughs> and uh, that's, uh, that's the point where they meet Tim the Enchanter. That's a great scene. Yeah, apparently there was a whole sequence with a with a um, king called Brian, King Brian the Wild. Oh, they really like that Brian name. And so, so that, that next time that sequence was all was completely cut out entirely, and probably for a reason. I'm not going to read it now because I don't have time. But I mean, I know I read it in the past many times. But let me just catch oh, up to where we are here. Oops, still X'd out, X'd out, X'd out. Here we go. <laughs> so, yeah, so we have the animated sequence that gives you like a little kind of potted history where uh, they meet up and then there's much celebrating. Yay. And then yes. the, then winter falls and then they eat Robin's minstrels and there was more celebrating. Yay. Yay. And, then, and then we come upon Tim, Tim the Enchanter. Enchanter, and, some call... Tim, yeah, because <laughs> you got to save it for the last. The last thing to say has to be Tim. Yeah, yeah. and yes, and, and you have a great scene scene of uh, just standing on the top of that hill and then just like blowing stuff up for forever, <laughs> forever, forever. It just is like burning money. Yes. it's just like, oh boy, and and then you remember like you know they had that uh, they had that sketch. In Monty Python, where how not to be seen. Yeah. So they know how to blow stuff up. They do like blowing stuff up. And there's lots of, yes, there's lots of blowing stuff up here. And there was a lot of nothing before this. There's a lot of just arguing about shrubbery, uh, <laughs> just arguing with an old lady, coming back and presenting shrubbery. 
So, yeah, it's been a while since we've had some action. So, yeah, okay, this is a good place to put an unreasonable amount of explosions for no good purpose uh, at all. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I love the fact that when he's he's doing all this fire and stuff like that, and Arthur goes, look, you're a busy man. <laughs> 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 He's blowing up a tree, <laughs> and he directs them to a cave where the uh, location of the Grail is supposed yes. to be. And the, again, this is a scene that everyone remembers: the the cave of Carabanog. Yeah. Now you think? Sorry, we will get to what it is. Yeah. But you like this creature? You know that's there. Like, how are you going to defeat the creature? Well, you've got a guy here who can shoot infinite fireballs. Yes. Yes. Well, this is no problem for him at all. Sure. But uh, that never enters into it that this guy has these abilities. Yeah, I know it's weird, isn't it? I was thinking that too when I was watching it. I was like, "Oh, that's interesting that we don't we don't turn to Tim the Enchanter. He's not there to help them. He's only there to bring them to cave. He's not going to do anything to actually." Help and again, them I'm not that uh, hip to aside from uh, seeing the musical Camelot, and maybe I think I've seen I might have seen the movie Excal- Excalibur. Uh, were there enchanters like in a lot of these Camelot uh, stories? Is this a is this a common uh, kind of character that you would have here? The enchanter? Yeah, like an enchanter who can shoot fire. It's just, just something you're like, oh yeah, that's normal in in this in this kind of world. I don't know. I mean, we have Merlin. We have Merlin, of course. And I, so that Merlin is a magician, but yeah, uh, that's a weird thing in this too. Is that there's absolutely no Merlin, mm. and that seems to be like a real. You think King Arthur? What do you think? Oh, you think Guinevere? Mm, yeah, we're not having her. Yeah. Okay, Merlin then. Mm, well, uh, no, we're not going to have him. Okay, Lady in the Lake. We will casually mention the lady in the lake. <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. So what are you doing? That's King Arthur. Will you, we see a round table? No, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go to Camelot. <laughs> really? So what's it going to be about? You know, like, uh, you know, like uh, getting shrubbery and fucking <laughs> <talking laughs> politics. Yeah. It's like all the beats that you would normally have in a story of King Arthur. Uh, no dice in, in, in this at all. And then, yeah, you got an enchanter here who can shoot fire out of, uh, out of nowhere. I'm like, okay, this seems like this would be where you'd put Merlin. Yeah. Like, he yeah. Could just call himself Merlin. And it's like, oh, Merlin, will you help us? Well, I will lead you to this. And and aside from the joke of, like, it's Tim, uh, it would still all play perfectly well. It, yeah. would be, it would be great. It would actually make more sense. But nope, just Tim the enchanter. Here we go. Yeah. I don't think Merlin has much to do with the grail a legend, though, so he's part of a different Arthurian legend. Okay, because so, Ar- Mer- Merlin, it's Merlin and and uh, Mordred and and like um, King Arthur's sister and all that and all that stuff. That's a kind of a different strain of the Arthurian legends, right? That, you know, it's they're probably like the legends are like composites that over time were attached to one name. If you know what I mean, right? So you it's have- just like if you if you were though to go, uh, we're doing a movie about King Arthur, yeah. What are five things about King Arthur you could think of? Sword from the Stone, uh, yeah. Lady in the Lake, Merlin, uh, is, is in love with the same person as Lancelot, uh, and uh, Round Table, and you keep going down the list. Uh, did you say Holy Grail? Huh? No, I guess. <laughs> That's what it is. That's it. Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, yeah. Remember, they're, they take their research seriously. They're not bringing stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the, with the Grail legend. But it's just a strange thing, like, <laughs> if you're doing a riff on yeah. something famous, um, yeah. and then you don't do anything, really, that has to do with that famous character. But you still are being very, uh, you know, locked into the legend. Yeah. But just like, 
the real obscure side bits and you really commit to those. But I guess that's, you know, that's well, a good nerd thing. I mean, but I think that you would agree that bringing magic into a story, it makes it more difficult. Okay, but they just did. I know, I know, but that's why. Right now, <laughs> that's that's why. But they can also like get rid of him quickly without our without our going. What? Where? Where did Merlin go? You know what I mean? And to, and to me, you could do that same thing with Merlin. Like this, like if you substitute, as I said, you substitute Merlin for the for Tim the Enchanter. Yeah. Aside from the gag of his name's Tim. Yeah, that's the best. Lose, that's the best gag. That's as, almost as good a gag as Roger the Shrubber. That's the thing. You've done that already. Like. <laughs> <laughs> the, the joke is, here's this, uh, you know, uh, person who's got a name that like is goofy compared to, you know, or very basic, and yeah, they yeah. had all the goofy names in the uh, Castle Anthrax as well. Yeah, we've we've done funny names, <laughs> you know, we've we've covered it. Yeah, but ah, eh, we've got to we've got to killer funny to have now. So it's yeah, fine. yeah, no point, no so, point worrying about these things. What what do you? This movie's like a almost perfect. There's no point complaining that Merlin's not in it. <laughs> it's kind of silly. <laughs> Where is Merlin? Jeez. It's King Arthur. <laughs> whatever. It's not. It's not whatever. It's like these are the greatest hits of King Arthur. All right. So, so uh, what, you you missed him. <laughs> so here's the thing. Uh, I'm gonna do a movie. I, I didn't oh, know you were about? such a Merlin fan. Here's the thing. Uh, what are you gonna do a movie about? I'm gonna do a movie about Robin Hood. Oh, I like Robin Hood. So who's gonna be like uh, Sheriff of Nottingham? Yeah. Oh no 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 no. <laughs> Little John? No 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 no. Friar Tuck? Mm, 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 mm. Maid Marian? No, thank you. You know, it's that one. Well, they time do have that, more that... than just. But what if you did it and you, yeah, you told a different story. You had like some of the merry men in it, but you didn't bother with like the Prince John stuff. Yeah, the and... real deep cut merry men. The real yeah. deep cut merry men. Like you did some and other then, stories. And then they do, what do they do? Do they go and like he shoots an arrow in half? Nope. Okay. Um. What, so what's he do? Oh, uh, you know, that time that he was, uh, you know, he was like uh, trying Dress, to find a good horse. Dressed as a like, woman really and good... dressed as a woman and went and, and, rescued Maid Marian. Okay, no, no, Maid Marian's too mainstream. Let's get her out. Oh, what are you talking about? They still have they still have Lancelot and Galahad and stuff in this movie. Yeah, but they don't Just, have uh we don't have Guinevere. Man, there's gonna, no little love interest in this. I'm gonna buy there's you a, no, uh, I'm gonna make a shirt for you that, that says I'm with Merlin. Hey everybody uh, who's out there. <laughs> Am I making a point here or what do you what do you guys think? I think I'm making a fair point. Am... Okay, so so back to the cave. So we're at the cave. It's guarded by uh, the beast, yeah. and uh, and then we see the beast come out, and it's a little <laughs> rabbit, which is adorable. Yeah, it is adorable. And uh, and then it easily kills uh, three of the uh, three of the knights, <laughs> Wayne, yes. Hector, and uh, Bors. Luckily, those knights just came for that sequence. Yes, because we don't want them and, to get. Uh, to... And, uh, and again, it's the wonderful blood, the beautiful, beautiful blood. Oh, so beautiful. Uh, and then it's run away once again. Uh, and then they uh, try to figure out what to do. And it's the uh, they decide on the holy hand grenade of uh, what is it? Anti- Antioch. Antioch. Yes. Which I believe was in uh, Ready Player One. And uh, that's uh, almost ruined it for me. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Antioch, I think, is a, isn't Antioch a city in the, the uh, Middle East? Like it would have been in the Holy, holy Land. Uh, it is. Uh, it is a city. Uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, it's. Uh, it's ruins lie near uh, the modern city of uh, Antakya, Turkey. Okay. Okay. So I don't know if that helps you. No. Uh, knowing where Antakya but, is. So not really Holy Land, but around that, around in that world at that time. Around that, yeah. And okay. uh, and they decide to use the holy hand grenade. Uh, luckily, we've got the, uh, the the brother who's up there who, who brought it with him. And then we get a nice reading of the instructions in Bible style. 
Uh, yes, I love that. I love the sequence. It, oh, a, a sketch that could only be written by boys that went to uh, pri- to uh, public school and had to go to had to go to chapel in the morning, and th- they all have memorized that particular lilt, that particular speak speech yeah. pattern of of of. Uh, I just love it. I, and what's so like if you watch the sequence, don't look at Michael Palin. Look at Eric Idle. Like Michael Palin's doing his doing his little speech. But what's so great is Eric Idle's nodding at particular points of it or shaking his head, mm-hmm. you know, so he'll he'll be like, you know, um, uh, where he's doing the thing like, uh, you know, three shall be the number thou shall count. And Eric, Eric Idle will just sort of nod his head. And that number of the counting shall be three. Nod. Four shall thou not count. Shakes his head. Just something that little, just these little things that are five that, is right out. Five is right out. Just these little things that are. Oh, and this this also plays on uh, King Arthur's inability to count to three. He keeps getting five and three mixed. Yeah, up. Yeah, threes and fives mixed up, which is a nice <laughs> kind of setup. Yeah, which they set up very early on, and it kind of pays off in this. Five, three, what? <laughs> yeah, blows uh, blows up the uh, blows up the rabbit. In a nice explosion. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. It's now, at good. that point, Tim just le- – well, I like – by the way, I like Tim enjoying them all being killed. Yes. Uh, Tim just leaves, right? We don't have any ed- – Oh, yeah. Ed- no, he's gone. He's gone. He's like, just once, gone. Once you bring in Brother Maynard and all that stuff, he's, he's long gone. Yeah. I always got confused remembering this uh, when I was a kid because I thought Tim the Enchanter was the guy at the bridge. But it's uh, like, no, he was just a yeah. rather crazy character before this. <laughs> yes. Because it yes. was like – Oh, the guy who like shoots fire, he'd be the guy who would do all the magic stuff. Nope, just unrelated. Okay, <laughs> it's fine. So indeed, they go into the cave and uh, and uh, translate the writings on the wall, uh, directs them to the castle of Arg. Yes, uh, which I, I really like that sequence where they're like, where he's like reading it and he's like, uh, he who is valorous and pure of heart may find the Holy Grail in the Arg. What? The arg, and I like again them just <laughs> them breaking it down, going like, "Well, he wouldn't have written that." Yeah, and then the other person going like, "Well, he could have been transcribing it." It's like, yeah, that actually does or make he could, sense. No, he could have been dictating. Yeah, he could have been dictating. Dictating it. Yeah, yeah. that does make sense. Then, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, uh, but just just then, we're introduced to the monster. <laughs> yeah, and because uh, we don't have we don't have a million dollars budget here. No, so. We're gonna have a drawing move the plot. <laughs> yes, and so yes, they're chased. They're chased through uh, what looks like real caves. Like yeah, a real... after the after the monster uh, devours Brother Maynard. Yes, that's after, after devours the drawing of Brother Maynard. Uh, then they're chased through the caves by this monster, who it seems th- as if they they have no chance of escape at all, but for the f- fortunate circumstance of the animator having a heart attack, which, <laughs> which is Terry Gilliam in. Very quickly, you know, the sped up the camera, you know, uh, sped up and him falling backwards in his chair, which is great. And you hope that Terry Gilliam never has a heart attack or this footage will be used. <laughs> Maybe you hope he does have a heart attack. What? Well, I mean, he's, he has a pass away somehow, so it at least would be kind of funny if they get to use that footage. I think it'd be better if he goes in an explosion. That's the way we all want to go. <laughs> okay. So uh, they then arrive at the Gorge of Eternal Peril, which is beautifully done. Like you were mentioning, Terry sure Gilliam is. shot the scene. Yeah, it is. It is a gorgeous scene. Yeah, yes. It's simple, but uh, really, really effective. Yes. And uh, then the man from Scene Twenty Four <laughs> shows up, and that's what they call him. And, so uh, I was going to say, there, there's uh, in the script, there's a sequence where they're climbing up a up a path, a, tre- a treacherous path, and there's a sign, a, a milestone, which says. 
arg, four miles in an arrow. <laughs> and then another sign that says knee, 82 miles, an arrow pointing in the opposite direction. <laughs> nice. They did not use that, though. It's uh, Yeah, that feels very uh, Simpson-y. It seems like one of those background jokes. Uh, and uh, yeah, so now we uh, we find out what the challenge is. The challenge is you got to answer three questions. Yes. Uh, or be cast into the gorge of eternal peril. Uh, which, as a, as a kid, scared me because I thought like, oh, it's like a bottomless pit that you'd fall fall in forever or something like that. Yeah, I was yeah. always uh, terrified of bottomless pits, thanks to a <laughs> Flintstones episode uh, where so there was a bottomless pit. And I was like, that's not what I expect from my Flintstones. Flintstones. Uh, but yeah, someone gets thrown into a bottomless pit. And uh, what a horrible thing that is. Um, <laughs> so Lancelot so goes, Lance, yeah, Lancelot goes yeah, first. Go oh, sorry. You go ahead. I was oh, say. I was just going to. All right. You, I'll do the first, you the second. Uh, Lancelot goes first and gets asked three questions. Uh, what's your name? What's your quest? What's your favorite color? And uh, it's Lancelot, quest for the grail, blue. Off he goes. Great. Yes, and that's what's and so of course Sir Robin sees this, he's like, Well that's so easy, why was I scared? So then he runs forward and you know, uh starts saying the thing and of course he's doing the sort of yes, yes, whatever, go on, bridge with your bridge keeper with your questions and the bridge keeper says, what is your name? He says, Sir Robin, he says, What is your quest to find the Holy Grail? Uh what is the capital of Assyria? Robin indignantly, I don't know that and then he's flung down into the, the pit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, now, now they had a ma- they had, they had made a major character out of Gawain, but they don't use Gawain. They have it should be Galahad who approaches at this point. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's Galahad in uh, Wikipedia. Yeah. And in, yeah, in, Michael Palin. Yeah. Interesting in the script. Gets... In the script, they don't have him. Uh, they don't have him. It's Galahad, of course, who goes across, who then answers all the questions correctly, except inadvertently copies Lancelot's answer of blue for his favorite color when it's actually green and he's... Sworn. And then goes, uh, no, red. And then, yeah. Yes. Ah! yeah. <laughs> so who played Gawain or was Gawain in this at all? I don't think so. I think Gawain Yeah, just, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, then uh, we have... Uh, Arthur. Yes, Arthur goes up with, with Bedivere, I guess. They approach mm-hmm. together and... Oh, I see. Yes. So they have Gawain here, but actually it's Galahad in the in the film. I guess they got mixed up over who was whom because uh, they uh, have Gawain, but it's Galahad because what is your favorite color? Blue, no yellow. And then Arthur and Bedivere step forward. He asks them their name or asks Arthur his name. King of the Britons, what is your quest? Find the Holy Grail. Then he says, what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? And Arthur says, what do you mean? An African or European swallow? Which is such so nice to circle back to that from yeah. the beginning of the film, and then the bridge keeper does not know that answer, and he is then cast into the pit, <laughs> which allows. Yeah, it's a good. It's a good ending to that scene. Yes, it's it all, is. Yeah, yeah, it is very that's, good. It's good payoff. It's like, oh yeah, it's great. Yeah, and then Bedivere and Arthur then cross a very rickety bridge, and apparently that is not Graham Chapman crossing the bridge, but a crew member dressed as Graham Chapman, because on that day Graham Chapman, who at this point in his life was a terrible alcoholic had not had had to leave the hotel early had not gone in his uh, course of drinks that he would normally have in the morning to mm-hmm. steady his nerves and he started suffering terribly from the dt's at this moment and could not uh, physically cross the bridge oh, which that's a drag. no one knew this he was out as a gay man but he was in as a he was in the closet as an alcoholic mm-hmm. and so no one knew why he was so everyone was like well, I thought Graham was this mountain climbing guy, and he was doing all what? He can't even go over a rickety bridge. <laughs> so, but it's just like he was so suffering from it, and there was that moment for him that uh, made him want to stop drinking. Yeah, because he realized that he was just letting everyone down 
with with his behavior and he uh went on the wagon and never never drank again oh is that right yeah oh and that's fantastic so yeah he was completely sober for um life of brian in fact he he was the the the, the set doctor on life of brian so he played brian and also uh was did all the first aid and stuff on set oh <laughs> i know isn't that great <laughs> yeah oh that's very, very nice to hear yeah cool okay uh so uh they uh, they cross the bridge. Yes, and they uh, and they can't find Lancelot because he's been arrested by the police. <laughs> yes, that's right. Which you know what? Fair enough. He murdered a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, Lancelot does deserve to be taken sure, away by the police. Sure. I'm all I'm all for that. That's that's fine. Yeah. Uh, and they uh, they uh, a kind of Viking boat pulls up. Yeah, a sort of magical boat just comes to the to them. It's, it has no no one to to captain it. Just... And this was a scene again. I'm projecting here. Okay. But you know. Again, because it's got a little bit of uh, Lord of the Rings in my head, mm. and you know, getting on the boat and what have you. And yeah. it was the two actors who have uh, who have left us, and so it was like uh, Graham Graham Chapman and and Terry Jones. Oh yeah, uh, getting on this boat, kind of yeah. going off in the mist together. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> it's like, uh, so yeah, it was like uh, it's very, very, uh, very, very sweet. That is sweet. Uh, and then they yeah they arrive at a, a castle and uh oh <laughs> Frenchman's there the French uh, again yes and, and uh, he's just as much a jerk as before this is the weird bit is like when I when I watched this I was like I seem to remember like when we leave the Frenchman scene off the top I'm like I seem to remember a bunch of other stuff <laughs> yeah, that he said but yeah. I guess he didn't yeah. oh I forgot that he comes back at the end. <laughs> I love that he says, uh, Monsieur Arthur King, who has the brain of a duck, you know. <laughs> I just love that line. Oh, it's so good. So good. So many good insults there. And then um, we... Can I uh, mention one thing that's a little weird to me in this movie? Sure. Um, so you have the Trojan rabbit. Yes. And then later on, you have a killer rabbit. Yes. That, to me, is a little too much rabbit. Okay. I would say I would say if I was doing a rewrite on it, and how dare I? <laughs> I would keep the I would keep the cute rabbit because that's great watching him attacking yeah, the, the yeah. people. But I would change what the what the beast is like. We get a squirrel or something off the off the top uh, because it's just uh, you've done a rabbit beat already, and uh, it's weird having two rabbits in your uh, comedy thing. That is that's just me. Moving uh, on. Did you know that in um, Dungeons and Dragons that that bunny is a is a monster? I think it's called the Vorpal Bunny. Oh, is that right? Named from the blade in Jabberwocky, the Vorpal Blade. Yeah. I do um, a live action uh, comedy show, and so occasionally uh, I will end up fighting something that uh, is <laughs> very Python esque, and uh, I remember that bunny a lot. So, so sorry. What would you change the rabbit to the the Trojan rabbit? Squirrel off the top of my head. Squirrel. Mm. Kind of, com- bats, kind of complicated. Bats. Kind of complicated, though. Well, the tail's funny. It is, but it'd be hard. It'd be complicated to build on for for a movie set for a movie. I don't with, think it was, it a... was super easy to build a rabbit. <laughs> well, it's just a yeah. I guess not. They didn't really just build make the tail. The ears tiny, and then you put like a one of the ears in the butt, and then you got a squirrel. <laughs> eh, there you go. Look, they're not going to do it. We're not going to travel back in time and change it. I'm just saying, you've got two rabbit bits. Yeah. In in your movie which is a little bit odd so they needed a third you could have do a third sure that sounds fine to get a magician at the end yeah, yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah that's... and maybe that magician is merlin and then i finally <laughs> stop talking about it uh so so yes so arthur and and bedivere are, are of course taunted and humiliated they are taunted by the french 
the French knight, and then they have uh, some something poured on them, which I imagine is... It's like is, feces, yeah. Might be feces. Might be feces. And then they uh, <laughs> they then appear I to... Get, I got on Wikipedia, it says, showers of manure. Okay. <laughs> they then appear to walk back across the water to the shore opposite this castle. Yeah, that's weird. They took a yeah. boat there yeah. and walked back. Yeah. But okay. And, it's and a, then somehow we're going to run back with the with the army that they have. Yes. And then we have one of those fabulous things that movies can do where they take like 20 people and make it look like 4,000, you know, and there's there's all these shots of blades being sharpened and, and things being readied when probably there was like five people who actually had armor to wear and the rest of them were just like dressed normal and were hidden amongst the, just the kind of built. It is a very effective uh, scene. Yes. And I know that part of it was shot in the early, in the first week of filming because their one camera had broken, so they had nothing they could they couldn't really do very much. So they they just kind of like they didn't want to waste time. So they filmed some you know uh, environment shots, but then also they rounded up some people who were there like watching them film and used them to, as stand-ins to to film some of the some of the uh, the kind of insert shots for that sequence. And then later on, they had like a huge crowd and they used that as well. So yeah, they're pretty. Uh, pretty smart they they were they used their time wisely because they didn't have a lot of money or a lot of time so they they had to be quick and so yeah so we get this huge scene and and it's interesting in in the in the documentary eric idle says it was his idea to end the film the way that it ends and he says and my kids always tell me that it's a shit ending (laughs) (laughs) and i don't I actually quite like the ending. I liked it as a kid, and I've heard people criticize it. Confused it confused me as a kid. I never thought like I, I'd seen the actual ending. Oh, okay. Because it would like end, and they wouldn't run all that black afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Because it was on yeah. CBC. Yeah. They would just like, and that's the end of it. And they, they'd <laughs> go to commercials and not say, that's the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And it would end at a weird time. It would end at like, you know, 20 minutes to the hour. Sure, So sure. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, it's still going on. And then it would like never really come back. And mm. like, well, what's going on? See, I guess that's where I guess I was where I was lucky that I saw it. I saw it at the theater because it yeah it just ends and then you sit there and there's that organ do 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 just sit there and I think my friend and I sat there for the entire seg that whole thing thinking maybe that it would come back but of course it doesn't it just it just stops there now that music at the end yes uh, that's from okay as you say that's from uh, DeWolf. Uh, yeah. and, and that music at the end sounds like the music at the end of Dawn of the Dead, where they're um, is the, is Dawn of the Dead the one in the mall? Uh, Dawn of the Dead is the one in the mall, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like that's the one where it's like all the zombies in the mall, and then it's playing that you know da, 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 da. it sounds very much like that kind of music. And then I was looking up DeWolf music, and they did the music for Dawn of the Dead as well. I'm just wondering if there was any connection between those uh, generic bits of uh, kind of over the credits music because they both sounded similar to me. DeWolf did the music for Dawn of the Dead as well. They, they there was music from uh, from DeWolf in Dawn of oh, the okay. Dead. Oh, okay, interesting. Huh. And I would assume since it's that Muzak ending in Dawn of the Dead uh, with the zombies kind of you know flailing around that it's uh, that it probably was that's probably DeWolf. Well, interesting. And I would assume both were from DeWolf. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, there's um. It says, in addition to several songs written by Python regular Neil Innes, several pieces of music were licensed from DeWolf Music Library. These include Wide Horizon, which is used during the opening titles, Ice Flow 9, also used during the opening titles, Countrywide, used during the beginning titles after the first 
titles are first uh, titlers are sacked. So I guess that's that exciting music playing. Mm-hmm. Homeward Bound, which is uh, King Arthur's heroic theme. So that's the da 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 da. And then plays forever. Yeah, yeah Cross Swords uh, played during King Arthur's battle with the Black Knight. The Flying Messenger played during Sir Lancelot's misguided storming of uh, Swamp Castle. The Promised Land used in the scene where Arthur approaches the castle on the island. So that's when they're floating towards the uh, starlit in the starlight. It's, it's uh, uh, briefly used uh, for Prince Herbert's attempt to ex- uh, express himself with a song. Okay. Mm-hmm. Love theme, which was also used briefly for Prince Herbert and then revolt, which is used as the army charges on castle Arg. So there you go. And of course, okay. and of course we have them, uh, Yes, the huge rush of people heading down the hill towards the towards the uh, castle controlled by the French, and then a police car with a siren pulls up, and everyone stops because, of course, it's a police car, and we're an army. We're going to stop, of course, for a police car. And they, yeah. then they also have a, a black Mariah, like a police van. So we have to, you know, we can't, we have to get into that. We that, that really will make us stop. Because... Also, they're shocked. They've never seen a police car before. <laughs> this is just amazing to them. It's not even the they, year one thousand. They don't yet. seem that surprised by it. Mm. Oh, it even describes it as a black Mariah in the uh, in the script. Oh, that's good. I like that they're accurate. And then one of the police officers like stops the filming. <laughs> so this whole thing has been filmed this whole time. Just puts his hand over the lens. Um. So yeah, uh, that was how it was written at the end of the film. Uh, as the as the black Mariah drives away, quick shot through the window of all the knights huddled inside, together with Soothsayer. But that part was cut out. Inspector end of film says, "All right, put that away, Sonny." Walks over to puts his hand over the lens. Film runs out through the gate, and the projector shines on the screen. There is a blank screen for some fifteen seconds. Suddenly, this part's been crossed out. Suddenly, jazzy music, animated titles, a new film completely free with the Monty Python film. The credits, four or five minutes, a film mainly animated about the credits, i.e., includes the actual credits for the film, but is really elaborate. The end. And then it's, all that's crossed out. It says slushy organ music starts, and the house lights in the cinema come on. Orgy music continues as the audience leaves. Yeah, that's how to do it. Good. It's great they had all the credits off the top, so you don't need them at the end. And like, get out. We're done. Like, get out as fast as you can when you when you finish doing your comedy. Go, 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 go. Uh, yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to have people hanging around. So, yeah, John John Cleese said about the film's conclusion: the ending annoys me the most. Uh, it ends the way it does because we couldn't think of any other way. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you, I mean, once the army's there, you really can't have a battle because it's not, that's not where the film is. So, right. so I, I think, you know, as a kid, I thought it was a great ending. I just thought it was uh, great that it ends with the there policeman. Was, there was an alternate ending, in. apparently, uh, uh, according to, uh, uh, Michael Palin's private archives, uh, that was, um, a battle between the Knights of Camelot the French and the killer rabbit, <laughs> but the budget wouldn't allow it. So they went with the simpler one, which is fine. Yeah. It ends. It, it starts small. It ends small. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's all, it all, it all works. I think we agree that it's a, it's a great movie except for the lack of Merlin. I think we all agree that. So uh, <laughs> it's all fine. So uh, just at the end here, it tells us that Connie Booth played the witch. Carol Cleveland played Zoot and Dingo. B. Duffel was the old crone to whom King Arthur said knee. John Young played the dead body that claims it isn't dead, and the historian who isn't A.G.P. Taylor at all. Rita Davies played the historian's 
the historian who isn't A.G.P. Taylor, Honestly's wife. Sally Kinghorn played either Winston or Piglet. Avril Stewart played either Piglet or Winston. There you go. Those are the credits. Nice. Yes, it's a, I would, it's a great uh, book to I have would, for this. Uh, yeah, I would like to. Now, you've been to Scotland. Have you ever gone hunting any of the castles? No, no, I haven't. I, I, I have not done that. You, you know, we usually go to visit family, so we're, we're, we have places to go and things to do. But um, yes, and I'm not really a nerd that way. Do you know what I mean? I'm a, I'm a big location nerd. Yeah, is that right? Okay, yeah. Things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and not... they're all they're all there. I would like to see, I would like to see that cave, which is a copper mine in Scotland. That'd okay, be fun. Be, yeah, yeah. I guess that'd be yeah. I mean, I've been to uh, Liverpool, and I've never been to the cavern and stuff. So you know, it's just like, <laughs> and I'm a big Beatles fan. So yeah, it's just I just but that's not you know like I'm a Beatles music fan. You know, not really a where the Beatles stood fan. But yeah. Um, I'm the I'm the kind of person who like uh, one one day I was walking through down New Street in New York and I realized I was in front of the Ghostbusters uh, firehouse and just gasped. I was like, ah, this is great! I just love I love that. I just love uh, locations. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I would love to like see the castles from uh, from this. That would be uh, that would be a lot of fun. I know they're not where they shot the things because yeah, like I say, you had to fake them because you couldn't have it. You know, uh, you're not shooting from a balloon. So, uh, so yeah, but it would be, uh, it'd be interesting. Uh, I did think this was a, a, a great movie. I think probably their best movie is, uh, life of Brian. Um, mm, yeah. As far yeah. as like full movie, um, this still, this was a sketch, uh, movie that, uh, you know, hung together very well, but I think it's, it's the best sketch movie I've ever seen. Oh yeah. Uh, so, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's By very, far. yeah, it's very well done and, and it's pretty, it's pretty interesting that, I can't think of any sketches in it that veer from the from the central, you know, central premise of the of the film. Like often you'll find like movies that are sketch films that do try to follow a premise. It seems that it's irresistible for them at some point to kind of do one or two sketches that have nothing to do with the with the um what you know what seemed was which whatever was kind of said to be the premise they'll always kind of veer off of it for some reason. Yeah, I'm trying to think like if Brain Candy did that and I suspect it did. Um, but that's, that's the only one I could think of that's, uh, kind of similar with yeah. trying to do like a full theme, but also yeah. ha- make everything work as a sketch itself. Yeah. But they're, uh, they're Monty Python. What are you going to do? They are, uh, you mentioned the Beatles, uh, they're the Beatles of sketch comedy. <laughs> uh, so sure. there they are. And this was sure. them at their, uh, at their, at their best, even though they were wet and upset, uh, for a week <laughs> and you know, they, they got better. They sobered up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're uh, yeah, it's a, a very very enjoyable movie. Um, but I would I would turn to our uh, listeners and say if we've uh, messed up in any way here and uh, gotten stuff wrong, uh, let us let us know. Let's also mention that it was partly funded by Pink Floyd. Who, oh, let's do that. Who were looking for a place to uh, park their 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 earnings and and were convinced by someone that they should invest in this film, which is very smart of them. Uh, unlike Life of Brian, which of course was produced by George Harrison, Life mm-hmm. of Brian. I guess Life of Brian was produced by a different rock <laughs> rock star. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, but yeah, there's a few different kind of hip acts that put their money in into uh into the into the uh, the movie because it and I don't think they wanted it to be um I don't think they wanted it to be a um uh like a loss. They were you know they thought it would be good, but they want I think they were kind of curious probably as well like oh Monty Python going to do a movie maybe that'd be kind of cool to invest in. Well, that's great. But I don't have a list of uh, all the uh, all the old um, or all the actual. Yeah, 
I was just trying to look through the back here and see if there was like a list of of who of who uh, was who gave the money, but no. Let me just see. Well, if you if you want to, you can always put it on our uh, our web page. Any of that in, uh, additional information, or you know, we could add it uh, later on. Yeah, it just has the cost of all all, all the stuff, like whatever th- everything costs. <laughs> Hotel living expenses, what the set designing costs, what sound crews, everything, everything is listed here for you. It's a really interesting book. It's just quite quite revealing. Um, Life of Brian's the same. Like it has the the shooting script, so it has like if you watch that film, there's a uh, scene at the end where Eric Idle shows up with this group of people that kill themselves, mm. um, and you're kind of like, well. Where do these guys come from? And there's like a, a scene in the film where he flees the city. Brian flees the city and he ends up meeting these guys who are like, they're like a, a Zionist liberation front or something like that, or some, some kind of thing. But they're like, they're almost like, there's, I think the reason it was cut out is they're so, they're so, um, they're so uh, fanatical that they're almost like Nazis. And it's like kind of, kind of a comment on, on how you can, you know, how quickly you know, it's a very political comment. I don't want to go too much into it, but I think they felt it didn't really, it kind of slowed down the movie or maybe it was too heavy handed. Mm-hmm. So they cut it out, except for the ending where they suddenly appear and kill themselves at the end of the film, do this kind of kamikaze death thing and for to no avail, it doesn't do anything for Brian. But, okay. when, but when you watch the film, you're kind of like, well, who are they and where did they come from? That was weird. <laughs> but yeah, when you read the script, you go, oh, that's who they were. Okay, that makes sense. Interesting. Well, maybe we'll uh, we'll cover that one uh, in the in the future. Yeah, that'd be fun. Uh, we're gonna have to put up a, a, another uh, list to uh, choose from. Sure. Yeah, and, that'd be the uh, next thing. Uh, get you guys to uh, vote on that. So, so uh, how how can these nice people contact us, Dave? What can they do? Well, everyone, if you go to our website, which is called Sneaky Dragon, named after our uh, flagship podcast if you go there you'll find that the show will be posted there and underneath it is a place for you to leave comments we'd love to hear from you there you are also welcome to reach us on by via email at sneakyd at sneakydragon.com sneakydragon.com i felt like that just fell apart in my mouth <laughs> and then we're on you twitter done this for a while dave that's we haven't done this show in many <laughs> many weeks it's true it's okay <laughs> and then we are on uh on Twitter at sneaky underscore dragon. And we have a Facebook page, which is sneaky dragon. So all those are ways to meet us. And soon we will have a list, another list of three films for you to, to cast your vote on. And uh, maybe you guys choose one we haven't seen before. Just saying. Mm. Just saying. All right. There we go, everyone. Thank you for listening to the show this week. Uh, Ian, what do we say to say goodbye? What do we say? Yeah. Uh, how do we go? Where they go? That's the way the popcorn uh, pops. <laughs> We'll save you uh, the uh, the curtain area. <laughs> hey, that floor was sticky when I got here. <laughs> Those are all things that that we say. Hey, sit sit a couple of seats away from me, will you? It's different times. <laughs> That's right. I can't sit in Ian's lap this time. That ain't butter. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everyone. See you in two weeks. Bye. Centric performance.